Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm just so good today. I am so good today. I'm so fired up. I'm so ready to do this podcast. I'm great great to be with you again, Conrad and Steve Kaufman, who you can't see online, but is producing the show with us. So happy to be here. I'm happy too, man. It's going to be a great show. It's, uh, it's the holiday season. It's all over us right now. Um, this is a lot of fun. And if you haven't been catching up or keeping up with what we've been doing lately, by all means, go check us out on YouTube. We've got, uh, a more fun YouTube channel than ever before. 83 weeks on youtube.com. We're not only showing you video of what we're doing. We've got some fun little companion pieces and all that. And Lots of little bite-sized clips of the show, but now we're doing it with a live studio audience. Shout out to the crew over at adfreeshows.com. We've been promising you since the launch of the website, you get the shows early and ad free, but we can't get them to you any earlier than real time. That's right. Real time. Uh, so everybody is uh, in the chat popping off right now. They're excited to hear about the power plant and everything else we got going on. But first I want to remind everybody, you and I are hitting the road again, man. Saturday, January 14th, 83 weeks live is going to invade Atlanta, Georgia, the home of WCW. That's right. Eric Bischoff is coming home. This is a big weekend for impact wrestling that weekend. They've got their pay-per-view the night before at center stage. They'll do TV tapings on Saturday, the 14th. Why not make a weekend out of it? Come check out what impacts up to see one of the best wrestlers in the world and Josh Alexander, their world champion. But at the same time. See your favorite podcast. Here's some stories we can't tell here on the program. Eric Bischoff on stage again, and this time in Atlanta. It's 83weekslive.com. That's 83weekslive.com. You can do the VIP and get your meet and greet, get your autographs, get your photos. We got some cool little collectibles and swag we're going to be giving away. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, But you in Atlanta again, man, this just, that feels like peanut butter and jelly. It just goes together. I don't think I've been to Atlanta 
for you know a, a signing or a convention or 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 a, a independent show. I, I I don't I don't think I've been to Atlanta other than passing through since I packed up my shit and left in two thousand. Wow. <laughs> so, this is going to be this is going to be fun for me. I'm I'm you know I, I probably you know did some stuff with WWE in Atlanta when they were you know doing a raw somewhere, but it sure. wasn't in Atlanta if I remember right. It was way outside. But anyway, yeah, to be in downtown Atlanta, and I'm I'll tell you the truth, brother. I'm I'm thinking about just going to the show Saturday night. I just want I'm so excited to go back to center stage. I, I don't know if you've ever gone through this, Connor, because you you know, you've kind of stayed close to where you grew up, right? Yes. Reasonable proximity. Yes. Well, I, I haven't. I've, I've been bouncing around like a ping pong ball since I was 12 or 13 years old. And you, know, I, I always have these thoughts. Oh, man, I want to go back to my childhood home or I want to go back to the to the grade school that I you know went to and all that. You just to reminisce and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I, I kind of feel the same way about going back to Atlanta and going back to center stage. Mm -hmm. You know, that's. It's gonna. It'll definitely be the first time that I step foot in center stage since probably 1995. Wow! Once Nitro started, I handed off WCW Saturday Night, and I didn't go to those those uh, tapings at all that I can remember. So, it's this is gonna be kind of like that going back to you know my old elementary school kind of vibe. I'm looking forward to it. I may even sit in a crowd if I can buy a ticket and watch the oh. show. Oh, dude, I already got us hooked up. You know, I'm, uh, I've become pretty good friends with those folks and they know we're coming and I can't wait, man. Believe it or not. I've actually never seen wrestling in center stage. I know where it is, but I've never been inside the building. Never got to wander around backstage. Never got to see. I just want to, I just want to, that's what I want to do the most, man. I just want to wander around. Cause that's where the memories were for me. You know, once you got out there, that was the, eh, it's fun, but the real memories for me especially early on all happened in that little tiny, what was, I don't know what it looks like now, but it was pretty grungy <laughs> backstage area. And I'm, and I also, I'm going to say this um, just to be a little shift gears a little bit, you know, I've been a little, I've been not hard on impact. I'm not critical of impact. I've just not been interested in impact and I've not been supportive of impact. Um, and part of it is really, chicken shit because i got screwed out of a bunch of money and mm. i don't even care about that but they were when it was under the tna management you know screwed my son out of a significant amount of money for him and that just left such a bad taste in my mouth overall that i think subconsciously it's kind of rolled over into impact which is why i've not really taken any interest in it at all but i met Josh, Josh Alexander, their world. Josh champion. Alexander. I met him a couple of weeks ago in Salt Lake City, and I and I actually sat at ringside for his match as the quote unquote enforcer. And so I got to you know up close and personal, got to watch that ma watch that match, and and he's really really good. He's one of the best he's, in the biz. He's fun to watch, and he's believable, and he stays in character, and he he's working the match. I mean, he's he's so into the match that he's not posing and pretending he's a wrestler, and I love that. Yeah, because that that allows me as a viewer to quit thinking about it and just feel it. Yeah, and so I'm looking and I'm thinking, and it was that match that made me go, you know what? I'm, I'm kind of being a dick yeah. here to to some talent that's you know they're they're you know they're on an almost non-existent cable outlet. You got to be really really committed to find them and all that. 
but that's not their fault. That has nothing to do with the talent. So I, I'm going to support the talent. If it means sitting, you know, out in the bleacher, or out, they're not bleachers, but sitting out in seats watching, I'm happy to do that. I'm looking forward to it. Well, let me say this too. Uh, the, the outfit that you had trouble with, this is not the same. I realize it might be technically the same organization, but just like you've seen in your probably, and everybody has a town restaurant that for whatever reason, it's been this kind it was a Chinese restaurant and then it was a Japanese restaurant and then it was a Mexican restaurant and now it's a steakhouse. Well, they're under new management. So I don't think you ever had an issue with Anthem. I, I think this, this predates their ownership. So yeah, was, but, and that's why I said it was kind of chicken shit on my part. Cause yeah. you're right. Everything you just said is 100% accurate. And I understand that. Yes. But I still, I think subconsciously is like, fuck I get it. Screwed me out. I screwed my son out of cash. You're on the list. You'll never come off of, but that's not, that's not them. Yeah. <laughs> they yes. didn't make that choice. So yes, this is me coming clean saying I've been a little bit harsh supportive yeah. for childish chicken shit reasons. And I'm going to do a make good. Well, I'll tell you this. They've got, uh, I think it's one of the best kept secrets in wrestling. I think their production is really, really good. I think they've got some of the best in-ring talent. Uh, and it was funny. I had a conversation a while back that, you know, and I don't know why impact doesn't really get there. Just do, but everybody has been there either on your way up or on your way down. It feels like it's a who's who of professional wrestling. And they've got a lot of really good storylines and incredible production and fantastic in-ring performers. And I would even challenge you and say, and again, I know we totally disagree on this, but I think by and large, and boy, we're going to get down a rabbit hole here. Wrestling today is just doing what we did yesterday. And so for years and years, everybody thought, well, the Holy grail is you've got to be on national TV. You've got to have television. And then the Holy grail was, well, you've got to have pay-per-view. I mean, I'll never forget the whole speech that Paul Heyman gave before barely legal, where he said, being on pay-per-view is the dance. Well, that's not really the case anymore. And I don't think TV is either. Like I finally cut the cord. I, I had direct TV for over 25 years and I cut the cord. And it's because I find out that I'm watching more of the quote unquote app content than I am traditional TV. And I haven't missed it at all. I just think people are consuming things way, way differently. And I get that little report, like everybody listening to this does. If you have an iPhone on Sunday, it says, Hey, here's your average screen time. So I just don't think television is as important. You can find that impact show in a lot of different places, but I still have the access. I mean, I, I hold access and HD net, which was the, the previous name. And that back when Mark Cuban had it, that was like a, a fun channel for me. So it was always on my radar, but I hear you. It's not as big as a TNT or a TBS or a USA, but even that Eric, I think sometimes we put blinders on and I used to do this in my mortgage business. I was just focused on the North, the Huntsville market, you know, damn, even Birmingham, which is two hours away. Now I'm just focused on Huntsville. And then you take those blinders off and you're like, well, man, I got a license for this whole state. Let's see what we can do. And then it's well, now I got Tennessee. And before you know it, it was like, oh shit, I'm doing podcasts in all 50 states. So we're at 46 states now, but we had to take those blinders off. And I think, I think I'm waiting on wrestling promotions to kind of do that. Like, I think there will be a big opportunity for someone to create wrestling on a streaming service where they drop a whole season and it's bingeable. I think that will happen. But I think creators. We put a, can we put a? Can we stop right there for a yeah. second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and this is probably you know 
a conversation more suited for strictly business, but we loved, we live to enlighten here at 83 weeks as well. Absolutely. And, and oftentimes, in fact, we trademarked the, the, the term going into the weeds, which is, you know, the audience's desire for that granular kind of detailed conversation that you oftentimes don't get in typical sites. So going to the point where you said, you know, you could see wrestling working on streaming. And we've had this conversation with people who are in the streaming industry and associated with it over on, on Strictly Business. But if, if you subscribe to the theory, as, as I do, that one of the reasons wrestling is working as a business model today is because of television rights. If yes. you look at the revenue streams for WWE and probably AEW as well, um, if you if you took out television and inserted something else, I'm not sure that something else can generate the revenue that television is generating. And therefore, in my opinion, television is the most important thing in the wrestling revenue model to date. But if you also subscribe to the theory that wrestling is working so well and is so valuable as a television property is because it's live. What else is live? I mean, sports is live. News is live. And by the way, sports and news are probably only the two most profitable revenue streams for any television network and or studio. Most coveted for advertisers, for sure, because you're, you're fast forward verse you know if it's a sitcom you can watch it whenever and just fast forward the commercials but if it's a game you're interested in and it's live well you just got to kind of sit there you can't fast forward real life i mean although we all wish for time so you got to sit i think i have actually <laughs> I, know my, I, know, I know my liver has <laughs> there you go <laughs> but my here's my question and all that nonsense um right now you can't do live wrestling on streaming you certainly couldn't yes you can that's the silliest thing i've ever heard it no, no, happens no, no, all no, the time no no, no 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 bear with me in the what you said just release an entire season make it bingeable you know, back, yeah 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 yeah. yeah so if if live is what's driving revenue through television television is the most interest or most important revenue stream in all professional wrestling how do you create a revenue model with streaming that would equal to or greater than the advertising or the television licensing model that currently exists. How do you do that? It exists for two companies, Eric, and it doesn't exist for anyone else. Who's that? It, uh, you're acting as if television rights is the only way to make money in wrestling. No, it's the biggest line item for AEW and WWE, but there's a bunch of other wrestling organizations who are out here trying to, to break through and get to that level. And they're not getting these huge television, right? There's not another. No, I know there's a lot of little ones out there. And that's my point. There's a lot of little ones out there that don't have major television that are, you know, that are, they're probably, you know, I'm sure in some, may, maybe many cases, there's, they're profitable and people are making a living doing it. But if you want to break through and get to that AEW level as a, as, as an emerging new merging company, or you want to someday, you know, 20 years from now, 10 years from now, whatever, you know, have. 20% of the WWE re revenue share. Um, how do you do that with streaming? Well, here's the thing. I think you got to understand from my perspective, what I was trying to communicate is we do have a big two right now, but once upon a time, 
And even though ECW wasn't that big wrestling fans referred to them in the nineties as the big three WWF, WCW and ECW. Well, we've kind of got a big two pretty easily right now. And I, and I would argue that impact is number three, but I think there is room for a player to move up even from where impact is. And I don't know what impacts long-term plans are. I don't have any inside information. I don't know, but I am just saying, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about a silly show known as Cobra Kai. And how, man, they're just doing old territory wrestling booking when you take a look at that program. And I would argue, and I think you would agree with this, that in business, more often than not, timing is kind of the most important thing. Some would even say timing is everything. And I think if we could go back, I don't know how many years, five, six, seven, eight years, Lucha Underground was ahead of its time, and maybe it was too early. But if Lucha Underground launched right now on a streaming service and it was bingeable and it got a little bit of a a push or promotion from a Netflix or what have you, I think non my mom would watch Lucha Underground and she would watch them back to back to back to back to back. I don't think I could get my mom conditioned to sit down and watch an hour of Lucha Underground on TV 13 weeks in a row, but just binge it over a weekend or two. I think she'd be into it. Uh, it, 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 it does present itself and you've laid it out here before that relative to the cost of producing other, other television shows that re- producing wrestling can be fairly affordable. I do think there's an opportunity for there to be a third player to gain some traction and gain some momentum through the streaming model and making it bingeable. But I also think you could do that through social media. I think the reason I keep coming back to that is. Like there's not a TNT in the rest of the world. There is here in America, but like when we're talking about USA and TNT and TBS, we're talking about America. We're not talking about everywhere else where wrestling is still vital and you got to go pick that up. But if it was streaming, I mean, just take a look and I'm not making the comparison, but squid game became like the biggest thing ever wasn't even you know, an English speaking deal, they had to dub it in and it was, but it was a global phenomenon. And I think there is a bigger opportunity to not say, well, we've got to do what WWE does. We've got to do what WCW does or why let's do something a little different. And we have seen big projects, not wrestling, but other big projects go and live exclusively on streaming. And I think some of mine and your favorite shows that we watch every week. They're not on traditional television. They're on one of those streaming services. Dude, I just, <clears throat> like you, and I mean, recently, like within a lot. In fact, we haven't officially cut the cord yet because I, Lori and I talked about it. And I said, let's, let's see for, let's live for a month without it. Yes. And if it, if we feel good in a month and let's do it. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm the, Lori wouldn't care at all. She, she hardly watches any television at all, except for with me at night for an hour or two before we go to bed. But I, I'm the one, I'm, I'm guilty of needing to have that, like usually it's news, on playing in the background. white noise in the background. Yeah. And and I thought, okay, if I'm going to cut the cord, that's going to be the thing that I'm going to miss the most. Don't miss it a bit. And actually, I kind of feel better not listen because I don't pay attention to it. It's not like I'm focused on it, but you're hearing it. You're hearing it. And it's just a lot of, it's just so negative anymore. Everything's negative. And it, I thought, okay, if we cut the cord, boom, this is, I'm going to, I'm going to start jonesing for my 24 hour news access, not a bit. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to probably, we're going to probably cut it too at the end of this month, 
But I'm still going back to if you and I were going to start that, if, if you and I are, yeah, we'll use you and I. If you and I are going to start that business tomorrow and we're not, we're not thinking about this is a no. purely hypothetic discussion on a revenue model. But let's say you and I decide, along with Steve Kaufman, that we're going to launch a, a wrestling company and it's going to um, launch as a streaming model exclusively. Just say that. Right. You're going to charge $5.99, $6.99 a month. I think Tony Khan's doing it. I, I believe I read somewhere where he's going to start doing that soon uh, as a streaming model. And I think that's cool. Um, particularly if it keeps some of that ROH, Ring of Honor nar narrative from diluting the main core brand's narrative, which I think it does. Anyway, by the subject. way, remind me to talk to you about that off air. Um, yes. There's a little twist in there that I can't talk about on the air. I, I really want to just put a bug in your ear and you'll go interesting. I can see that happening. It's Very a rumor. Cool. It's unconfirmed. So I don't want to spill the beans here, but. If I get it confirmed, I'd be glad to talk with you. And by the way, if you go back to when AEW was launching, and it might have been even on this podcast, I think it was. You know, and when when you asked me about, oh, do you hear the rumors about you know Turner? And I came out and said, man, I don't see that. I just yeah. can't. I was wrong, obviously, because I just didn't really, in my heart of hearts, believe that Turner's would want to get back into the wrestling business again. But whatever. Um, but I did say in that conversation that if, if I were Tony Khan, I wouldn't focus on television. I would focus on being the premier wrestling streaming platform because that's an emerging market and television is a dwindling market, you know, slowly but surely. Yes. Traditional te linear television as it's referred to. Yeah. So I, I am also a big believer in streaming and, and have been for a long time. However... You're going to charge $9.99, $4.99, whatever your price point is. It's going to be under $10 if you're going to survive. You need a lot of people, a lot of people to sign up for that and maintain that subscription base to make up for television licensing rights. Mm -hmm. I That's the part that I, how do you do that? Because, you know, you, you look at AEW's case, the last I heard, and I don't know if it's true, but if it's just an example. If they're getting $45 million a year for television rights, how do you get even half of that over any reasonable amount of time on a streaming model? That's a lot of subscriptions. Well, I don't think you do from starting your own. I mean, I, I think long-term that's probably the right move because he's got such a content library. Um, and you kind of want to have... And boy, I don't mean for this to sound the way it does, but you kind of want a backup plan. Like when I take a look at AW right now, it feels like kind of all their eggs are in one basket with Turner. And we don't know what that next deal is going to look like. We'd all like to think that we do, but we kind of don't. So if there's an opportunity to, uh, to have something in your, in your back pocket, why not? Uh, but what we want you to have in your back pocket is tickets to our live show in Atlanta, Saturday, January 14th, 83weekslive.com is where you pick them up. We got uh, way down the rabbit hole talking about the shoulda, woulda, couldas of professional wrestling. And uh, we're going to tell some stories about Atlanta and Turner and WCW and the good old days that we can't tell here on the program. Here's a little hint, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, baby. 83weekslive.com coming your way Saturday, January 14th. Be here before you know it. And, um, before we jump into it, Lord, 
I don't really want to open this because I was just fighting for my life at times this last week. I feel like we got to at least address the comments from Ric Flair. He was just firing off on his podcast last week about you and others. And I just said out loud, get me the F out of here at one point. Like I just do not want to do this, but he did have comments about you. And I feel like in the interest of being fair, I hope there's an adult in the room, Eric, your response. I've thought, as you know, I, I, ever since Rick made the first comments about me being some kind of an arrogant prick or whatever it was, that was like the first, you know, shot across the bow. And it caught me really caught me by surprise. I mean, six months ago, I was sitting at a bar at Houston entertaining a room full of beautiful women with Ric Flair right. <laughs> and, and, and their husbands and boyfriends. It was just, you know, it was nothing, nothing right. that it shouldn't have been, but hang Emma's classic Ric Flair. Yeah. You know, I even posted a couple pictures of it. It was so much fun. Dennis Rodman came down we all hung out together, you know, and, and I, and I'd see Rick at different conventions and, you know, we'd, we'd get together if we were at the same hotel room, I'd get a text from, you know, Rick, Hey, come on down. Woo. See you at the bar, you know? And that was like six months ago. Right. And, and then all of a sudden, bam, I mean, I'll get blindsided with that. And I don't know what it, what it was. I have my suspicions. I've had other people suggest what it might be, whatever. And, it, you know, it's, I went into that kind of, well, it's just Rick being Rick, you know, kind of thing. And he just kept on and on and on. And then I, and then I responded. And, you know, I did an interview with Chris Van Fleet in Las Vegas um, Thursday. And Chris asked me about it. The podcast will probably be up on YouTube here shortly. But, and I said, Chris, I'm done. You know, I, I have love for Rick. Tr true affection. I don't know why, personally. But, you know, there's probably a lot of us that have affection for Rick that don't know why. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> But it is what it is. And I have a lot of respect for Rick. It doesn't mean I'm not going to fire back, especially publicly, if somebody's going to, you know, start taking shots at me from the sidelines, because that's, you know. Not cool. For better or worse, kind of my nature is to fight back, right? And, but I, I, I'm done. I'm, I'm just done. I, I have too much affection for Rick and too much respect for Rick. I don't, if Rick wants to sit down face to face, take a swing at me. I don't care. I'll still have affection for Rick. But if, if he wants to sit, if he wants to, you know, face to face, just kind of talk this thing through and figure out where it's all coming from and why. And look, if I, if I owe Rick an apology for something I said that set him off, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but I'm not, you know, I just don't want to participate on the whole social media thing. I just don't think it's healthy. And it, it, and again, because of the respect I have for Rick, I just, I don't want to do it. So I'm not doing it. I'm not going to fire. He can say whatever he wants to about me publicly. He can post whatever he wants in his social media. I'm just not going to engage again, face to face, different conversation, but this social media crap, you know, eh, not doing it. I'm all done. You know, not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent. Not at this juncture. Um, I appreciate you saying that. And, and I don't, I haven't seen it yet, but I think the comment that you had on the documentary of Ric Flair that comes out on December 26th. So, uh, I guess it's a week from today as folks are listening to this.
what's the comment? I can't imagine anything that I would have said. Now, if it was something, well, here's the I thing. Said, I think I know what it is. Twenty years ago, that's different because I said a lot of shit. But I think it was phrased that they wanted the creators of this documentary, which is WWE, by the way, wanted to show what all he had to quote unquote go through in order to still be alive and a pop culture, whatever he is today. And I believe the comment that you had, and I, again, I haven't seen it, but Rick has mentioned it to me. I don't know that he said it on the air, but here it is. It was something like about your, about your debacle with him in 98, where you're going back and forth and suing and blah, blah, blah. I had to teach Rick flair a lesson that rules are rules. And they're not, there's not a different set of rules for him. That must not exactly what you said, but that's the, no, the and, gist. And, he, and right. I get that. And I'm sure that that would kind of triggered <laughs> Rick. Cause you know, it's, it's Rick, yeah. right? I'm sure it, it, it put him back in that period of time in that moment and lit him up. And I, and I understand that. However, I was being, and that's a problem about being in these documentaries. I was asked a question about that entire incident with the lawsuit and all of the issues. I'm not going to get into them here. It's not that exciting or interesting, but there were, you know, Rick had his, his side of the coin, you know, he had his position and his view of the world and I had mine and we didn't agree. And it got to a point where I, I, I had a hundred other talents under contract that were watching this and I couldn't let, I couldn't create a precedent where talent could just decide when and where they decide they want to work. Right. And that's overgeneralizing that. And again, Rick had, Rick has to this day, his side of that issue. And I have mine, but keep in mind, it was Rick Flair and his attorney that took all that stuff public. You know, they were putting it out in the Atlanta journal constitution. And Rick was, you know, the narrative was all out there on the business section, front page of the business section of Atlanta journal constitution. So it's not like I couldn't react and just try to keep it quiet. Right. Everybody was watching this and I did have to make an example is probably what I said. Yeah. Uh, as a teacher lesson, I had to make an example. Out make of an example is the exact phrase he used. Yes. You just jogged my memory. So that's what you said. Yeah, I said I, I had to make an example out of Rick, not so much because he was Rick, but to the rest of the talent so that everybody understood that, yeah, these contracts actually work both ways. It's it's a two-way street, not a one-way street, and you do have to perform, and there are certain things that go along with being under contract in terms of responsibility, and you have to work within those parameters. And because of the difference of opinion that we had and the breakdown in communication we had, Rick had Rick drew a line in the sand, and I had to. So in that context of describing that situation, yeah, I probably said we had to make an example out of Ric Flair and I get, you know, if that's what it was, but look, I, I was asked a question and I didn't, I don't think that's a question that I haven't been asked before or an explanation that I haven't given multiple times or response. So whatever doesn't change where I'm at. I'm not saying any more negative stuff about Rick. Rick wants to break it down face to face, wants to fight it out, wants to hug it out. I don't care. I'm good either way, but not, not doing it over social media and on podcasts. Well, listen, I, uh, I think everybody knows when it comes to Ric Flair, he had a, a motto back in the day, no hair, no flair. 
Tis the season for clean balls. Fa la 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 la. Our friends at Manscaped are helping you clear your driveway for safe travels this holiday season. From stocking stuffers to white elephants, Manscaped's products are at the top of every wish list. Grab some crop mops for your pops or the body buffer for the holiday lover and win this year's white elephant gift and help all the men in your life go from eggnog to nice hog this December by going to manscaped.com using that promo code 83 weeks for 20% off plus free shipping. I got to tell you a lot of folks in my life are getting manscaped this season because I've given it before and I know that it's always going to get a pop. That's what we're looking for, right? When they unwrap it and they say, oh my, and they start selling for you, buddy, they're going to sell this one for a long time. Manscaped is the gift that keeps on giving. First of all, they're not going to believe that you gave this to them. They're going to tell all their friends that you gave this to them. And then when they get home, their wife or girlfriend is going to say, well, are you going to use it? And that's when it starts to really pay dividends. Roll Tide. Manscaped is a one-stop shop for all your holiday needs. The Platinum Package 4.0, buddy, it's perfect. They've also got a ton of liquid formulations. We call them stocking stuffers. Your shampoos, your body washes, your upstairs, and your downstairs deodorant. I'm serious. Process this. You can give your Uncle Bob ball sack deodorant. You reckon that's going to get a laugh? You reckon your Aunt Linda's going to want him to try it out and just see what happens? It's a great gift. They got gels, they got exfoliants, they got comfortable boxers. You don't have to have your chestnuts roasting. Maybe you got a dad with some gnarly nose hair trimmers. And maybe it's awkward to have that conversation with dad that, Dad, your uh, your nose hair is getting into your eggs. Well, hand him a nose hair, <laughs> ear and ear hair trimmer, okay? Rock it. Let him rock the Shears 2.0, the full nail kit. It's got the clippers, the tweezers, even a file. The preserved cologne. It lets cowboys like uh, Eric Bischoff, who like that light, bridzy, light, woodsy, breezy feel. They get to carry it on the road with them, and you get to take it to your apartment, too. You don't have to be a real mountain man to smell like one. Come on. What about the body buffer? Well, it can replace that disgusting-ass loofah filled with old bacteria. It's going to even act tougher. But really, the crown jewel is the Lawnmower 4.0. Yes, the same very one that Eric Bischoff took on stage at the Roast of Ric Flair and pretended to shave his balls in front of thousands of people. You can do this at home with a light. You can light up your sack like Rudolph. It's a 4,000K LED light. It's water safe too. Like, I mean, I, I've never trimmed my nuts in a hot tub, but I guess you can. You can do whatever you want, but you can't nick yourself because this is going to reduce those nicks and snags thanks to the skin safe technology. Manscaped makes this easy. It makes it fun. I highly recommend it. I've given it over and over and over and I will again this year. Why not get 20% off and free shipping? Use the code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. Get 20% off with free shipping manscaped.com. The promo code is 83 weeks manscaped for a perfect gift. That will be the holidays biggest hit. How about that, Eric? Little, uh, this music gets me in the mood. I, 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 your live reads for manscape and a lot of the other sponsors that we have here gets me in the mood and you, <laughs> I'm just thinking as you're going through this, can you imagine like when I was, or can I imagine like when I was 12 or 14 years old? Cause I had an uncle Bob actually. Oh, my dad's brother was named Bob. So, <laughs> I can't just get him. Hey, uncle Bob, here's some bald delivery for Christmas. <laughs> Just awesome. It's a home run. Like ball deodorant. Like 
And here's the thing too, guys. I know what you're thinking. Well, I want to get them a real gift. I don't want to get them a gag gift. This ain't a real, this ain't a gag gift. The shit's real. The shit's awesome. It works. No, and my, my aunt Kate would have been really happy with me. Had I given my uncle Bob some ball deodorant. <laughs> Everybody wants ball deodorant. Go to manscaped.com. Use the promo code 83 weeks. I can't believe what we're doing here. Let's jump into it. Our show today. Hey, before we do, before we do, can I just, we got our ad free shows family here, you know, watching along live with us. And I just want to give a couple of them a shout out. Yeah. You know, Drew Hastings, James O'Corey, Allison Faye. We don't get a lot of women. This is pretty much a testicle festival here on this show. So it's always nice to have a little bit of a female influence. Denovia Smack, uh, Eddie Bray. There's so many uh, of our, our family here with us. And if you guys have questions, do your best put it up there. We'll do our best to possibly answer it if it's within the, the context of what we're discussing today. Can't promise it because there's a lot of comments coming through here, but he'll give us a try, but we're, we're grateful that you're all here. So thank you. Very grateful that you're all here and pumped to be here talking about the power plant. And this has become something that folks have started to recognize was another innovation ahead of its time. And years before there was a a tracks, a developmental for a, a Funkin' Dojo, an FCW, an OVW, before any of that existed, certainly before the Performance Center and NXT existed, there was the power plant. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Uh, it was originally founded by Jody Hamilton, the assassin of course, we may recall he is the father of referee Nick Patrick, who, by the way, will be joining us later this month on the exact 25th anniversary of Starcade 1997. Tons of controversy around that match. Maybe the most controversial episode we ever did here on 83 Weeks. Everybody was talking about our screaming match, about what was supposed to happen, what did happen, and the fallout. And the guy in the middle of this controversy, the single person in the middle of this controversy is Nick Patrick. And he's never spoken to Eric about it. And it's going to happen in front of a live studio audience Adfreeshows.com, Wednesday, December 28th, right after AEW dynamite run to your computer. As soon as the bell rings on dynamite, log into adfreeshows.com, And you got to see Nick Patrick and Eric Bischoff squaring off to discuss perhaps the biggest, most important pay-per-view in WCW history. I'll be the moderator. So here's a spoiler. Eric's getting beat up, uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, Jody Hamilton, Nick Patrick's father, the assassin, he's going to open the uh, school here in Georgia in 1989. And it becomes like the official developmental school for WCW in 1991. Now compare and contrast that. I think they started doing funk and dojos and, and the such. 
in like 98 and 99. So years before there's even a semblance of WWE developmental, you guys already have one going with the power plant. Take me back. When do you remember being the first time? Because I think you too start in WCW 91. When did you first visit the power plant? Which as a reminder to everyone was located in Atlanta. I, you know, I, I don't know for sure. I, I would say it wasn't until probably 93. Okay. Uh, it was a couple of years again for people who are relatively new to the show. Um, I, I, for the first year or two, man, I'm just sitting an announcer. I came in and out first year, year and a half. I flew from Minneapolis to Atlanta, got there Sunday night, did my work Monday, did my work Tuesday, and usually was home Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. So I didn't really interface. And, and as an announcer, you're not really interfacing with especially developing talent, or at least I wasn't at that time. So uh, there was no reason for me to, drive over to the power plant location because it wasn't a part of the business I was involved in until about 93 when I was getting more involved in the production of the show as executive producer. And even though I didn't have any influence or opinion of talent that mattered, um, I was still anxious to see what we had to work with. So I probably 93 is when I made my first trip over there. Maybe, maybe 92, but I'm thinking it was 93. Take us now. We've seen some photos and such online, but take us through what you recall it looking like the first time you you got to check it out. You know, the power plant was located in in uh, an industrial area just outside of Atlanta, the, the city of Atlanta. I think it, maybe it was in Atlanta proper. Again, can't remember, but it was about I don't know six eight miles ten miles from the CNN Center. I, again, in a you know in a in an industrial area that was not as industrial areas go, it was pretty decent. You know, it wasn't run down. It was, it was a nice area, but it was basically a warehouse um, with an office in it and, you know, very high ceilings, which is necessary. Um, but it was like an aluminum Quonset hut steel, steel building of sorts that you see just about anywhere you go in any city with a industrial area, but it was a bit, I can't remember the size of it. I, you know, there was, I think there were four rings in there, a dressing area, you know, a couple small offices. So I would venture to say it was about five, five to 7,000 square feet, perhaps. Uh, but pretty basic, you know, now they dressed it up. My first impression when I walked in, there's a bunch of, you know, and they had a bunch of nostalgia items from, well, <laughs> from back in the day then. But, you know, big posters and banners. And it's, I mean, when you walked in, you felt like you were in a really cool, you know, wrestling environment. And it, it, it was impressive for that period in time. And the idea was impressive. I had nothing to do with the idea, but it, I was impressed with it. I just want to mention everybody. I think Jody Hamilton first opens this school in Lovejoy, Georgia, uh, which is um, below Atlanta. And then eventually it's going to relocate to Jonesboro, Georgia, uh, which again is, is, um, a suburb of Atlanta and maybe a little closer than Lovejoy, but still below Atlanta. And then eventually we know it does relocate again, 1995 forward. It's going to be there in Atlanta. And that's probably, well, that's, then there you go. That's the, cause I was never in any of the previous power plant locations. So the, the real answer to the question is not 93, it's 95. Um, let's talk about Jody Hamilton here for a minute. What is he 
considered an employee of WCW? Because we know that, you know, there's different structures that you could have for these training facilities. So like once upon a time, the folks who owned OVW, maybe they didn't necessarily work for WWE. They worked for OVW and had their own territory and whatnot, but they had some sort of a business affiliation with WWE. Jody Hamilton though, as far as you understand, he was a traditional Turner employee. That would be my understanding because when I started at Turner, Jody had an office, uh, adjacent to Dusty's office, um, one door down, uh, and Jody was in the office a lot. So I, I always assumed, I mean, obviously I wasn't involved in, in, in a contract if one existed or hiring him, if a contract didn't exist, he was already there when I got there. Uh, so I always assumed he was an employee and, and I honestly don't know if he was an independent contractor under my watch, or if he was indeed an employee, I always just assumed he was an employee. Let's talk a little bit about Jody Hamilton and just his reputation. Of course, WCW or all of wrestling fans know there's the quote unquote gorilla position. Well, that's a WWE term. And I think, you know, WCW used to have like a Jody position of sorts. Like it's just on the other side of the curtain, but it's still technically like, good. like how catering is named after me now. It is. Yeah. It's the Bischoff it's, it's, position. It's the Bischoff position, which everybody now assumes is catering. Just like when you say gorilla position, everybody understands that was named after gorilla monsoon. And that's the kind of control position just outside of the ring behind the curtains. Yeah. I think Jody had a reputation. Uh, first of all, he was, a a big fella and he had earned a reputation for being able to train big guys and, you know, teach some fundamentals and, and also help those big guys, you know, be a television wrestler. He did an interview with the, uh, St. Joseph news press in 1991, where he says he's only asking applicants three questions to determine if they're worthy of training their size, their age, and how much previous experience they've had. Now, of course, this is 1991 and we're not going to really spill all the beans here and, and lift the curtain too much, but how important, because we did see, don't get me wrong. There's been a few different ways to approach developmental. Once upon a time, everybody knows WWE was the land of the giants. WCW seemed to embrace a smaller variety of wrestler easier because of the success of the cruiserweight division and things like that. But there also wasn't, there also weren't maybe some preconceived notions. A guy like diamond Dallas page gets an opportunity to become a professional wrestler well past the age where most folks would be looking for developmental talent. Were there hard and fast rules as far as you understand it about, all right, here's the criteria we're looking for at the power plant, or was it a little more loose? Again, it's kind of all crystallizing for me and, and becoming more clear based on the 1995 comment and where the power plant was located, because that's when I really started getting involved. So my perception um, and responses to that question and probably the rest of them are going to be based on my experience in 95. I don't know what went on there previously in the power plant, um, but I, I know in 95, look, here was my experience and I didn't get, I, you know, I was kind of hands off again, I never claimed to know a lot about wrestling, the, the art of wrestling in the ring. That was never my strength, right? My strengths, if they existed, depending on who you talk to, were strategic 
in, in business driven. And later on, I got involved in creative, but much later on, but it was really wrestling was one of the things that I kind of, I knew what I didn't know. And I didn't want to try to have an influence over something that I didn't really understand or know anything about. Had I gone through the experience of training to be a professional wrestler, I would have had a much different position, but I didn't. So I kind of let it go or let it manage itself because I hired or tried to hire the right people to manage it, obviously under Jody's watch. Um, My understanding was that, or my impression, I should say, of the power plan, it was, it was, that it was very traditional, much in the sense of what I understood Vern Gagne's training camp to be like, which was weed out the, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff. You need some tough people in here because this is a tough business and you have to be mentally and emotionally as well as physically tough. It's not just being physically tough. You have to be mentally and emotionally tough as well. And I think a lot of the training, you know, under, you know, Sarge, for example, overseen by Jody and others, you know, Ole Anderson was involved, you know, for a period of time. I brought Blackjack Mulligan in to work with Jody um, for a period of time. So there was a lot of influence and occasionally Dusty Rhodes would get involved and come down and and try to help out and all that. Um, But my impression was first and foremost, it's, it's a a little bit like boot camp in the military. You know, you're going to first couple days, first week or two, you're going to, figure out who's willing and capable and who's not again, mentally, physically, emotionally, and then slowly introduce them to the more technical aspects of actually learning how to become a professional wrestler. So my impression was that it was very traditional, which would make sense because it was Jody and, and Jody still had a lot of that psychology and belief that, Wrestling should be protected and the credibility of the product is at the core of the success of the, all that stuff that guys that came up in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties really believed in. So I would say it was really a a old school kind of wrestling instruction environment inside of, at that point, a relatively more modern facility and process. How, um, how much management did you apply to the power plant, like, is there a direct report? Like who would Jody's direct report be? If you had to guess, doesn't sound like it was you. No, I think Jody would have probably communicated much more with Kevin Sullivan under my watch. Uh, when Kevin was, you know, head of creative, um, or, you know, there was a point in time when Ric Flair was in that position and I'm sure the the line of communication was much more between Rick and even whether it was Rick or whether it was Kevin, it was probably Terry Taylor who actually interfaced more so than the Kevin Sullivan or Rick. I'm sure Kevin or Rick would have come down, gotten involved. If there was somebody of particular interest, you know, if Jesse kind of put the call or excuse me, if uh, Jody Jody. put the call in and said, Hey, Terry or Kevin or whomever, um, I've got somebody you guys really need to look at and evaluate because he or she's moving along, whatever. Um, that would have been the type of reporting structure. Overall, it reported to me, like everything did eventually. Right. Um, but on an indirect basis, I think it would have been Kevin Sullivan primarily with Terry Taylor. Who um, or how, rather? Let's let's talk about how. How did folks 
like go to recommend someone for this. So like, well, let me take a time out there and explain. I know you guys ran ads in the magazine. I know you guys ran commercials on TV. Uh, I'm sure you just got tons of calls to the office. Hey, and letters. Hey, I want to be a wrestler. So I'm sure like you had secretaries and things who handled all that, but let's say, cause you've told the story before you're taking Garrett to karate. You see some potential like, man, Ernest, the cat Miller has it, whatever it is, it's dripping mm-hmm. off of this guy. This guy's got personality for days and he can do combat sports. We can close the gap here. I, I know how you did it. You just called up Jody and said, I'm sending a guy. Or I shouldn't say I know. I imagine I'm sending a guy, but like, let's say one of the boys goes to a bar and he sees a bouncer and he's like, man, that guy, how, how, what does that process look like back in the day? You know, there were, uh, there were under my watch, there was an attempt to create revenue because of, again, going back to pre-95, pre-96, revenue was still a big issue for WCW. So we were looking for ways to make money any way, anyhow, anywhere possible. And the power plant was one of those attempts where we would advertise and promote and people would, we would charge them. Right. It was a, it was a commercial transactional endeavor as well as trying to develop our own talent. Um, and then there was, there was, an, that was one way. And then the other way was just recruiting, you know, someone who wasn't necessarily looking to become a professional wrestler for whatever reason, but yet someone, whether it be Terry Taylor, Kevin Sullivan, myself, in the case of Ernest Miller, whoever uh, saw somebody that they believed had really interesting potential, then we'd, they would be recruited into the power plant. And there wasn't a charge for that um, because they were recruited and we would hope that we could develop them and eventually put them under a developmental contract, which we did. I think they ranged this think They started out about 50 grand a year. If I'm not mistaken. Could be wrong. Somebody, will, somebody will prove me wrong on that one. I'm sure. But they were, you know, they were minimal, but they were, there was enough to live on. You know, you're asking somebody to give up their day job or forgo getting a day job. Right. And usually these people were, you know, adults that had responsibilities and car payments and apartments or houses or whatever kids in some cases. So you had to pay them enough to survive and be able to continue to train. Um, and, and a lot of those, I guess you'd call that a scholarship, right? Well, let me, um, let me tell you in my, my quick little Google search here, thanks to our old friend of the show, David Bixon span and Chris Harrington long before he was with AEW, they discovered a lot of the WCW documents through some, uh, court proceedings. Chuck Palumbo started out at $39,000 a year in the, uh, in the power plant. Mark Jindrak started out at $39,000 a year. Elix Skipper started out at $39,000 a year. So I think it, I think, I think I feel safe enough to say everybody started around 31,000 or 39,000 a year. Okay. I'll buy that again. And it was the idea. And again, $39,000 back in 1995 was, well, this is $99, 64. $99, like it's 1999. So it's, if we're going to go ahead and do the old handy dandy inflation calculator from 1999 to now, there you go. Or he's got 95. Uh, I'm doing it on my end is 99 and it's 69,000. So, which is, 
you know, you're not going to retire. You're not going to, you know, go on long vacations in Hawaii or anything, but you can pay your bills back in 1999 on that kind of money. Getting paid to train ain't bad. No. And, and you have the opportunity depending on you to, you know, find yourself in a position where you're making much more than that. So I, I, I feel good about the way that part of it was structured. By the way, I want to mention too, I feel like a lot of folks, um, kind of immediately clap back on the amount of money that folks get paid to train. Cause I've even heard some criticism, you know, back when the performance center was first getting going and NXT was first getting going and it's like, man, they're not paying these guys enough. And listen, I hear you. I'm for the boys. Let's pay them all we can. But let's also say that wasn't that long ago, everyone paid to get trained in wrestling. And now it's a deal where a handful of folks are actually getting paid to train. That's some real progress there. I mean, that's not the way it I, used to be. I, yeah. I think anything, anybody that complains about, you know, wrestlers being trained to, to be in development for an opportunity to make ridiculous amounts of money yes, um, is really missing the point and doesn't don't see the big picture. I think it's a phenomenal opportunity. You know, it's not for everybody, but if you are really committed and you can go down to the power plant and back in the nineties, or you can go, you get accepted by the performance center and you find yourself getting a check every two weeks in order to learn a craft that could potentially land you in the, you know, seven, eight figure category. Anybody that complains about that is missing the big picture for sure. I do want to ask about, um, you know, like when, when everybody's making recommendations and, and clearly you sort of laid out that we are charging folks to wrestle. I don't think it originally starts that way, but we do realize eventually along the way, Hey, this could be something that maybe pays for itself or self-sustaining or a new revenue line item for us or whatever. But I think the old school way of doing things here back in, we'll call it 94, 95 is guys would send in photos and videotapes. And, you know, I've heard different schools of thought on this. And and again, I realize you're not Jody. You weren't necessarily running the school, but I know that back in the day, Bruce has said, yeah, guys would send in a tape and they would oftentimes just send like clips or highlights of hotspots, but I would prefer to see matches. Like show me one where you win, show me one where you lose, show me a baby face promo and a heel promo. And, and then they would send a headshot. Cause I know way back before everybody had VHS technology, you would just send headshots and a letter and say, you know, here's what I, here's my experience. Here's my height. Here's my weight. Here's my age. Here's my character. Here's my photo. Love to come work for you. Blah, blah, blah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is there's two schools of thought. I think a lot of times when it comes to wrestling school, cause we've heard Hunter before say that, well, a lot of these guys have figured out what works on the Indies, but that doesn't really work in the WWE. You got to learn the WWE way. And and Vince McMahon even used to say that a lot. You got to learn the WWE way. And I do think there's a difference between being a quote unquote independent wrestler and working for a live crowd versus working for a camera and a national audience. I totally understand that, but I've heard, yeah, being in, in, in the independence too long, you learn some bad habits that you've got to sort of unlearn. Was there a preference as far as, you know, for the power plant, did you prefer absolute greenhorns who had no wrestling experience or did you like every now and again, Hey, let's get a guy like a rock and rebel who was a big indie star and see what we can do here. Great question. And again, I think with context is really important here because 
back in the 90s, certainly in 95, the indie scene as we know it today didn't exist. There just wasn't, there was still indie wrestling around. I'm not saying it didn't exist. I'm saying it didn't exist to the extent that it does today. So there wasn't a lot of indie wrestlers. There wasn't the volume of independent wrestlers sending in tapes, sending in headshots. And I remember, I'm going to go back and forth in the timeline here just a little bit, so bear with me. When I first got to WCW, maybe after about a year or two, actually after I moved to Atlanta, which is now until about a year later, so maybe by 92, when I was spending more time in the office, even before I was executive producer or any of that, I just spent more time in the office because I was in Atlanta, um, whatever. I did. And I would often listen to Dusty, Ole Anderson, different people, Jody, certainly, a lot of different people who had been in the industry for so much longer than I had, who I had a lot of respect for. Um, talk about how difficult it is to develop new talent at that time. Because guys like Oli and Dusty and Jody and guys that really spent the largest percentage of their careers in the territory system, right? We're all now looking at, looking forward into the future going, where do we get that talent from? Because the territories no longer exist and the independency didn't exist to the extent that it did today. So that created a vacuum in in, in their minds, which they were right about. Right. So, I, and again, I don't know who, whose first idea was to really embrace the power plant concept and bring Jody in and support us. I don't know. I wasn't there at the time or certainly not a part of the discussions, but I was a part of discussions even before I got into management about the need for that talent. Now go back to your original question. My, what do I think in terms of better from better to find somebody out of the indie world or just green. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. I spent enough time teaching martial arts as a black belt to recognize that when someone would come in to our dojo and say, I want to I train here, and I've had three years experience or I've had two years experience and I moved from one city and I moved here and I want to continue my training. That would typically happen a lot. Um, it was way more difficult to train someone in martial arts that has had previous experience from another instructor because martial arts is, you know, every style, you know, a Japanese style Martial arts is different than the Korean style is different than this style is different than that style. And, and the technical aspect of each one of those styles can sometimes conflict, right? What works really well in a Japanese style of martial arts, for example, that relies primarily on punching techniques and hand techniques as a, there are some kicks, 
but they're, you know, it's probably 75, 25. The, 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 the physical characteristics and technical process of teaching someone martial arts um, is different for each style. So when, when someone would come in and say, oh, I've been training in Chicago and I want to, I moved to Minneapolis and I want to train under you. I spent more time untraining them for the first year than we did training them. And I've never been a golfer, but for those who have, it's probably like, you know, you learn to golf, maybe you taught yourself, watch some YouTube videos, or maybe you've even had some instruction. And just like golf or just like martial arts, I'm guessing that golf has its own teaching golf, teaching someone to become a golfer. Everybody that teaches it probably has a little bit different technique. But when you have somebody that's been training under a golfing coach, they develop bad habits, just like martial arts. People, students that come in and they want to train them and have previous training, we, I would consider it a, a bad habit. But they have been trained in certain fundamentals that are completely different than what we would believe in or teach. And you have to unlearn that. And it's be like trying to unlearn a golf swing after you've been doing it for five years. You know, it's much more difficult. So I would have always preferred to have somebody who had no training because that's kind of a, that's a big piece of clay and you could start to mold it the way you believe it should be molded. Whereas coming, somebody coming in from the indie scene, that clay's probably already been molded and you have to kind of start from scratch. And that's a, that's a tougher process sometimes. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're trying to learn more about the background and history and DNA of some of your loved ones, not for wrestling, but just for health reasons. Can we recommend embark enough? I don't think we can. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. Now we're excited to be partnering with embark vet embark allows dog owners to learn more about their dogs, health insights and their breed mix with the highest rated dog DNA test on the market. So right up top, we want to thank EmbarkVet.com for supporting 83 Weeks. And we want you to go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping and save 75 bucks with the promo code 83Weeks. If you have a dog owner in your life, you'll know that dogs are not just pets. They're family members. And as dog lovers, we want to do everything we can to make sure our dogs lead long, happy, healthy lives. I'm not just talking about Nikki or my dogs, baby and ginger. You know, we, we, we know we want those little rascals to live forever. And unfortunately that's not possible, but as long as we can have them as happy as we can have them, that's our goal. And embark is an incredible tool for dog owners that screens for more than 215 genetic health risks across 350 breeds. And that's more breeds tested than any other dog DNA test. They've even got a fun reveal video that you can share with friends and family. And it's been found to be the most trusted dog DNA test based on a blind study of 2000 dog owners. By the way, 61% of pet owners plan to adjust their dog's routine or feel more prepared to be a better pet parent after testing with Embark. So if you do get a, a serious health result from these tests, Embark will reach out to you and one of their experts will walk you through it. And I know that you recently did this with your dog, Nikki, and it came back as a purebred certified hundred percent Australian cattle dog. And I also know, I can't believe this is real, 
that Embark has a relative finder, which allows you to find your dog's relatives, which is just amazing. And I'm looking at some of the results here. Doc has 37% of Nikki's DNA. Pumpkin has 37% of Nikki's DNA. And Monty has 37% of Nikki's DNA. So old Doc, Pumpkin, and Monty are Eric's dog's relatives. Who would have thought? 72% of pup parents are puzzled when it comes to their dog's breed. It's time to end these guessing games. Give the dog lover in your life something they won't expect. The chance to decode their dog. It's the perfect time to shop for an Embark dog DNA test. Right now, Embark has a limited time offer on their breed and health kit and their purebred kit. All for our 83 weeks listeners. Go to EmbarkVet.com to get free shipping. Save 65 bucks with the promo code 83 weeks. Visit EmbarkVet.com. And use the promo code 83 weeks to save 65 bucks. I know you love Nikki, but man, how much fun was this to learn more about Nikki? Yeah, I'm going to do some more of that. It, it, it's, it is fun. And, but, but from a practical sense, you know, like Mrs. B and I, she's been studying nutrition for like 30 years. She's really, really has. And, and one of the things that we've learned, she's learned and taught me is that, you know, especially as you get older, right. You, you got, you want to stay ahead of things, you know, nutritionally, you know, you can stay healthy um, a lot longer if you're eating right. And if you know, for example, that, it, you know, my DNA is different, obviously, than, than my wife's. You know, she, her metabolism is much different than mine. So, you know, we each adjust what we eat and, and what kind of supplements we take. And this is the point that I want to make. And going through Nikki's DNA, I went, you know, I'm, I'm going to, She's fine now. She's perfectly healthy. She's running around chasing rabbits and deer and antelope and coyotes and all kinds of stuff. She just loves chasing stuff. Very athletic dog and all that. But as she gets older, she's probably going to be predisposed to some knee and joint issues. Not unusual in her breed of dog. Um, so I went to the vet, showed my vet the DNA report that I got from Embark, and my vet put Nikki on a prescription or a, a, a product called Dasequip, which is basically for your for her joints and ligaments and, and things like that. Well, you know, the, the same things available for humans, but stay ahead of that, and she'll be much active much longer as a result of me spending the time to kind of go through her DNA and learn more about her breed. And go okay, just because she's not limping around now doesn't mean she won't be in five or ten years. And I want her to have as long a life and as active a life as she possibly can for us both because she's a big part of my life so embark dna is really if you love your pet and i know everybody does um otherwise you wouldn't have them but if you're really really committed to not only your quality of life but your pet's quality of life check it out and you can stay ahead of the game like i did with with nikki do it right now you'll be glad you did embark vet.com and the promo code is 83 weeks save 65 bucks today embarkvet.com use that promo code 83 weeks let's jump back into the power plant here um you guys start charging uh, i think 2500 bucks to come train i think it's officially named for the first time in 1995 the power plant uh, any idea who may have come up with the name the power plant because it is a fantastic name yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. 
I don't think I ever knew. It's not that I forgot. I just don't think I ever knew. And by the way, RJ Krasinski just said his cattle dog collie mix is in the same boat and with regard to knee issues and all that. So testimonial from one of our family members here for Embark. Thank you, RJ. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know why I think this, but I think Sharon Sedello might have had something to do with that. You know, wow. she was the head of marketing, I think, at the time. And she was, you know, in a relationship with Oli um, for a period of time when Oli was involved with the power plant. So I'm, if I had to take a wild ass guess, I'd be guessing Sharon Sedillo. 2,500 bucks is the uh, cost to train. And thank you to today's sponsor, Fansly. Fansly has the adult content you crave by creators you already know and plenty that you don't. What's your taste? Vanilla? Not vanilla. Maybe a weird combination. Cool with us. Fansly has a whole algorithm dedicated to finding new content and creators you're into. Fansly allows you to discover and support a huge number of creators. Feet picks, water shorts, whatever you're into, Fansly is too. With a broad array of vanilla to kinky content and hundreds of thousands of creators, Fansly has the content you didn't even know you wanted. Don't know what you're into? Well, don't worry. Fansly can figure it out with their discoverability algorithm. Think TikTok, but, you know, different. Looking for something safe for work? Well, Fansly has content for every time of day, but they don't know your schedule. Want to get started as a content creator yourself? Well, Fansly makes it easy to start your very own small business from the comfort of your bedroom or wherever the content takes you. The Fansly team is dedicated to supporting your journey. They're here to make you money, helping you grow your community, takedowns of the content and everything else. And they're going to help you every step of the way. Fansly is dedicated to providing a safe and reliable platform for content creators of all type, because guys, sex work is real work. Listen up folks. We know what this ad's about. And if you don't, well, you're in for a long night. I threw it in my Google machine and boy, howdy. Hey, and y'all listen up. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Go to fansly.com slash promo slash 83 weeks for a free extended trial subscription to one of your favorite content creators. Just use the code 83 weeks at checkout all the content on fansly.com. Who knows what you'll find feed picks, your neighbor, Jenna feed picks from your neighbor, Jenna. Again, that's fansly.com slash promo slash 83 weeks. And the promo code is 83 weeks. Thanks fansly. And along with Jody, there's going to be various trainers coming in and out over the years. Paul Orndorff, Ole Anderson, Medusa, um, Dwayne Bruce, who we know is Sarge or Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, uh, Bobby Eaton, Mike Graham, even Terry Taylor. You know, when you, let's say you had a special project, like a guy like Ernest Miller, who had become a friend of yours and you saw value in when you would direct him there, would you say, now be sure to pay special attention to, or, Hey, I need to get you with so-and-so, or was it simply as, Hey, Jody, and then we'll figure it out. They got it. Let's just send them on over. No, I I think a good example would have been Ernest Miller, because that was really the only person that I personally, um, drafted into the power plant. And I think that was, you know, I would have gone right to territory, you know, out of respect, Jody, obviously, but 
I because I, I Jody was in the power plant. He wasn't in the office starting you know 95 96 jody was in his office at the power plant um he was no longer in the cnn center with the rest of us um so my point of contact for that would have been terry taylor and honestly i had more confidence in terry taylor than i had in anybody else in terms of training only because i spent more time with terry listening to terry's perspective on work in the ring and psychology. And to this day, I say, you know, one of the people that I've had, I was most impressed by throughout my career in terms of being able to teach and understanding psychology was Terry Taylor. Right. Terry would get in his own way sometimes. And, you know, we had issues, personal, you know, just the way he conducted business, but that had nothing to do with his talent and ability. And I always knew if I had a project like Ernest Miller, I wanted Terry to oversee it, not necessarily every element of it, not actually doing the instructing necessarily, but paying particular attention and overseeing it and, and kind of reporting back to me on, on status. Did you think the facility was ever going to be capable of putting out, um, a finished product? Like once upon a time, I'm sure this was just, eh, you know, we'll, We'll, let, we'll have a place for guys to come off of an injury. So for instance, let's say Steven Regal tore a quad. He didn't, but let's say he did. Okay. He's going to want to work off some ring rust and, and just get comfortable and get his timing down and get his conditioning in. All right. We'll send him to the power plant. Okay. Well, we got this special project that we think might turn into something with Ernest Miller, but you know, he's coming in kind of cold. Let's well, well, we'll throw him in here. And then maybe the same thing with. All right, we got a bunch of guys who who want to chase their wrestling dreams. They want to be big big TV, big TV stars, and and they'll pay us twenty five hundred dollars to train. And if we get enough of those, well, that can offset some other. Did you ever think? I mean, I don't think if we look backwards, nobody could have ever predicted that you'd get one of your great stars like Goldberg to come out of this. What was that a shock to you, or did you have hope? Were you, you know, optimistic that this might actually be a thing? Oh no, I believed it could be a thing. You know, there's, look, and it's funny, on Chris Van Vliet's show, uh, we, we talked a lot about Goldberg and the power plant, so I encourage people to hit that. But w- without giving away the same conversation that I had with Chris, um, you know, Bill is a perfect example of somebody that literally came out of the power plant and made it to the top of the industry in an amazingly short period of time. Uh, did I expect back to something like that to happen? No, because that's so unusual, right? When does somebody come from completely off the street, stone cold civilian, and then end up being as powerful of a character as you know, Bill Goldberg was in that sort of period of time? You can't, you can't hope for that. You know, you appreciate it if it happens, but it shouldn't be a goal because it's so rare. But I did believe firmly, and again, maybe because some of it it's just my background, you know, as an amateur wrestler, I kind of understood developing and, and development. I understood that, you know, professional wrestling isn't. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind the scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.
something you can learn overnight or on a YouTube video or in your backyard if you want, you know, reach a certain level. So I firmly believe that the power plant was critical to develop talent, but it also existed. It wasn't just for the guys who were charging $2,500 to chase their dream or another category of talent, but guys like Diamond Dallas Page. When, when Page was transitioning from, you know, being that announcer slash manager character into a full-time wrestler, a lot of what he learned, he learned at the power plant. Right. And I would have to let, I would have to let DDP, you know, go into that in more detail because I wasn't there or a part of it, but I'm sure Jody and Dusty and a lot of other people were there helping Dallas. You know, when Dallas wanted to work on his DDT and he wanted to have a finish that mattered, where do you think he practiced that? He didn't practice it on television. Right. You know, he was down on the power plant as well as guys who may have been injured and are kind of working their way back and to get the ring rust off and get their timing down. So the power plant served more than one purpose. It was a, it was a multifaceted kind of solution for opportunities and challenges. I've heard over the years that Terry Taylor was kind of the guy down at NXT that would help the guys go to what was referred to as quote unquote finishing school. The idea being somebody else is going to teach them how to run the ropes or take a flat back bump or what type of conditioning they might need in wrestling or just some of the different drills. But when it came to came time to like, all right, now they got the basics down. They've ran the coconut loop. They understand how to work in front of a live crowd and how to structure a match, how to work heel or baby. They got all the basics down, but now it's a matter of, we got to get some polish on them and get them ready for WWE TV. Because that is a different animal. That's when you're really exposed, not to a few hundred fans, but to millions of fans. Um, was there a person who you felt like was maybe better than others or, Hey, this guy's specialty is not teaching you the basics. This guy's specialty is getting you ready for a quote unquote finishing school. Was it Terry Taylor even back then, or maybe somebody else? in my opinion, it was Terry. And again, there may have been others involved. You know, I want to be really fair to the, you know, everybody else that was involved, including Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, who I think was kind of the, 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 the foundation in terms of the physical training and th- so forth. And a lot of people that have come through that I've talked to, you know, still have much respect for, for Buddy Lee Parker. So I don't want to take anything away from a lot of others. That being said, kind of going back to what I mentioned earlier, I spoke more to Terry on a more consistent basis about things having to do with detail and psychology and creating emotion. I just had more of those conversations with Terry. And oftentimes they came in the context of we're in a big meeting. Maybe we're going over a format and we're discussing finishes. Now I'm there as a bystander. I never, never, felt I had a good handle on finishes in terms of really creating the kinds of finishes that really create emotion and drama as opposed to just finishing a match. And whenever the topic of a finish would come up, I would just sit and listen. I couldn't really contribute anything, but I would listen for the ideas that appealed to me and my sense of psychology and my instinct. And it was almost always Terry Taylor that would in his comments, one way, shape, or form, or suggestions, he was consistently the one that I was most impressed with. 
Um, what's that? So ba- what's me, that based on? For me, it was Terry. Yes. Why, why are you? Why are you more impressed with him? I, again, I'll just I'll say instinct. You know, because I didn't have the knowledge or experience. I was ignorant in the literal sense of the term. And usually when I use the term ignorant, I mean it in the literal sense, lacking information or knowledge um, or experience. And, but I did, that doesn't mean I didn't have an instinct. Doesn't mean that when some, when I heard something that made me go, yeah, that will create emotion. Cause for me, that's always what it is. You know, everything in wrestling should be, in my opinion, which doesn't matter anymore, but I'm just putting it in the context of this period of time. Yes, it matters. Um, was that wrestling should create emotion. Yeah. Music should create emotion. A good movie, a good book, a television commercial should create an emotion. And when, whenever I would sit and listen to people talk, and maybe it started with the way I eventually became exposed to wrestling psychology back in the AWA. There was always a lot of psychology. I didn't know it as psychology, but in the way things were laid out, it created a mental picture in my mind that created an emotion in me. And I'll refer to that as my instinct. And that instinct carried forward so that fast forward 1995, 1996, if I'm in a room and somebody's laying something out, my instinct based on maybe my previous impressions, um, some of, sometimes it was triggered in a positive way and other times it wasn't. Terry Taylor was always that guy, usually that guy, not just Terry. Dusty was really good at it too. But oftentimes what started out as a great finish got really, really overly complicated and ended up not being. But Terry really understood psychology and had always, and he impressed me with the, even in TNA. Again, you know, and Terry and I are friends now. I mean, there's, we've, we've had a conversation a while back and we're, we're all good. And, and I think Terry would respect what I'm saying and, and not take offense to it like <clears throat> some people. But Terry, Terry would often, not often, occasionally get in his own way with the way he handled things and people. And it would always, it would cause an issue on a regular basis, but it never took away from my respect for him as someone who could teach psychology. You know, what's really funny that I've learned, and I think it's true in everything. It's not just wrestling, but just because somebody is really good at something doesn't make them automatically a good teacher. That's true. In fact, sometimes people who are really good at things make the worst teachers. And I, and I'm not sure why that is. Conversely, just because someone will use Terry Taylor as an example, um, never really made it to the big show. I mean, he made it to WWE as a red rooster for a minute, whatever. That's not really making it to the big show, right? That's not really making it to the top. Um, but he was one of the, when Terry's, when Terry was focused on teaching, I think he was one of the best, which is probably why I ended up in the finishing part of the, the, you know, NXT developmental process, because he could teach that he was a great teacher. You know, Greg Gagne was another guy who was a great teacher. He wasn't necessarily ever going to be the top guy in, in, you know, he never probably lived up to some of his own expectations or goals, I should say. 
But that doesn't mean he wasn't a great teacher. He really was. If he could have just been proud of that and expanded on that, you know, he'd probably still, you know, be somewhere today in the wrestling business because he really is good at teaching um, and, and also understood psychology really well. And there are other people that fall into that category. Let's talk about your boy, Ole Anderson. You actually wrote this about him in your book. I tried working with Ole first. I got frustrated with him because he was stubborn and ornery and hardheaded. As much as I liked him, I just got to the point where I couldn't work with him anymore. So I sent him off to head the power plant, which was our training facility. I wasn't exiling him. Ole was a great teacher and well-suited to the job, but he didn't see it that way. When I listened to Ole talk about strategic activity activities, where the business should go, it was obvious. He didn't understand wrestling's new direction. His ideas were dated and unsophisticated. He had zero understanding of the business side of wrestling. He understood the world, the way he used to know it. When he would talk about the mechanics of a match, what you should or shouldn't do in the ring, Ole glowed passion filled his voice. Oli's feel and understanding of the basics of the physical side of storytelling were very valuable. We desperately needed talent with good basic skills, wrestlers who understood psychology, as well as the athletic side of our business. Oli could teach them all of that. I mean, listen, I totally understand what you're saying about, we got to teach the basics, but if you're thinking. Hey man, this guy doesn't really get what modern wrestling is. Let him go teach the next crop of future stars. That to me is a real head scratcher. No, it's not. No, it's not because the basics are different than, you know, teaching, teaching people to take flat back bumps is teaching people to take flat back bumps. That, that techno that, that technique hasn't changed since the beginning of wrestling time. Maybe modified a little bit here or there. Teaching those basic fundamentals is is maybe more important in the process than even the finishing school or learning the the art of psychology. You can't learn the art of something until you understand the basics of it. And Oli was really good at the basics. He sucked at I, I I shouldn't say suck. That's wrong. That's unfair. He wasn't as good at finishing off that project as developing that project as others were. But in terms of teaching the basics, he was very, very good. Now, keep in mind, when I wrote that, I'm writing about Ole Anderson, who didn't survive the power plant very long. He was there for a very brief, relatively brief period of time until I fired him. Um, because Oli also, and by the way, I get in my own way every single day. So when I say he got into his own way, I think we, maybe we all do. Maybe yes, we all have absolutely. some habits that could be different. that would help us progress in life faster. So I'm no different than everybody else, but Oli's Oli's was more, I think Oli was frustrated. Yeah. I, and as good as he was at teaching basics and laying that basic foundation so that a talent could move on from the basics and then start working with someone like Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor or, or Mike Graham or Greg Gagne or anybody else to really take their game to the next level. Um, I, I didn't put Ole in that position because he was a throwback. He was a seventies guy, right? 
that was the seventies and early eighties was his peak as a performer or whatever it was. And he was stuck in that time. Like so many people are so many people who have, who achieve success at one period in their life, think for the rest of their lives that doing it that way is the only way to do it. And that's, you know, it's not true. Muhammad Ali has a saying that something sounds something like, you know, if, 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 if you're 50 years old and believe in the same thing that you did when you were 20, you've wasted 30 years of your life or something to that effect. And I think that's probably true in wrestling as well in some cases, but I used only for what I used only for. He was good at what I used him for when I used him for it until his frustration with the fact that these guys are now making all this money. That was a big, I heard that one all the time. Right. He was constantly pissed off when he heard that somebody was making a hundred grand a year and had a contract because he never had that. And I'm sure you've heard the stories of, you know, pro football players or baseball players or basketball players who had, you know, back in the fifties or the sixties or even the seventies were huge, huge successes that didn't make nearly the money that somebody who's got a 200 batting average today makes. Right that you'll never hear of again, but they're, you know, they're making $3 million a year, even though you don't even know their name. And that, that, that was true with Ole to an extreme. He was constantly angry and frustrated. So this new talent would come in, he'd train them. In some cases, you know, they maybe their $39,000 a year was bumped up to $75,000 a year because now we're starting to use them on TV you know, our dark matches or whatever, early matches on some of the syndicated shows. So now you got Ole Anderson who's getting really upset that these people are training that are actually getting the benefits of it. It was just a conflict. And it got to the point where it just didn't work anymore. And Ole being Ole mouthed off about me one day to Blackjack Mulligan. And I'd kind of gone out of my way to help Blackjack out of a really tough situation. And Blackjack was a very, very, very loyal person and ended up knocking Ole out <laughs> and I fired him shortly thereafter. All right. So listen, that's a famous story. It was in my notes. I was going to ask about the blackjack Ole fight. When do you first hear about it? And is Ole fired as a result of the fight? That doesn't seem right. It wasn't fired. No, he was fired as a result of all the things I described that led up to the fight. Yeah. His bitterness, his resentment, his negativity, and not being able to adapt. He just couldn't adapt. It was a new world. It was, a new, you know, and I had to move up, by the way, I moved Oli to the power plant because Oli got pissed off about something that didn't even matter one day. And it ended up in the CNN center, putting his fist through a wall oh. of his office. You know, that's not a guy you're going to keep in. You know, he was loud. He was crass. And, and look, I'm, F-bombs are part of my normal conversation, and I, you know, I'm not saying it's makes him a bad person, but you got to kind of be aware of your surroundings. You got to know when to turn it off. Yeah, you're in, you're in the CNN center for crying out loud. They have things called human resources, people yeah. that work in a division called human resources for a reason. And you're walking around MFing and threatening to kill people, and you get so pissed off, you punch, you put your fist through a wall. It was incumbent. You know, I didn't fire him for that. I didn't. I protected him from himself. 
Right. And I moved him down to the power plant and tried to convince him that that was really where he needed to be. I said, oh, you're not a corporate guy. You're never going to be a corporate guy. You hate corporate guys. You want to choke anybody that you see wearing a tie. And God forbid they wear a pair of wingtip shoes. It makes you go lose your mind. So let's do this. Let's going to put you down in a power plant. You don't have to deal with any of these suits anymore. You don't even have to deal with me anymore. You can just work down here with Jody and do what you love to do. I did that to protect him from himself and to keep his job. But once he got there and it was more of the same and he was, you know, it was a buzzkill for everybody. And then, you know, the incident with blackjack just kind of made me realize that, look, I can't help and or change this cat. He is what he is and he's not going to fit here anymore. And that's when I gave him his walking papers. It's not because of the fight. It was because of everything that led up to it. So listen, I, I'm not trying to beat up on Oli here. I just want to make sure I understand, you know, I, I've always been under the impression that he felt like it was a demotion. Even if he didn't necessarily cut his pay, the rap I've always heard was when you sent him to the power plant, he viewed it as a demotion. Do you think he viewed it as a demotion? Probably he, you know, which was his mistake. He got in his own way. He got into his own head. Didn't realize that he couldn't fit in a corporate environment. He refused to, he wanted the corporate environment to adapt to him instead of him adapting to the environment, right? It wasn't going to work, you know, and I'm sure, and I didn't cut his pay and I'm sure he, well, I'm not sure. I would bet he took that as a demotion. It's hard not to, right? I mean, it was right. You're, you're no longer in the kind of epicenter of the decision-making process. I think at one point only might've been a vice president. I'm not sure about that. Somebody might've made him a VP. And to go from that to, okay, we, I don't want you in the, cause really what I was saying is I don't want you in the office anymore. Right. It's, it's, you know, I, I inventoried him somewhere where he couldn't get himself fired. Ironically. And yet he did. So when you, you know, I know we're probably never going to talk about Ollie Anderson in long form here on the show. It's just, you know, not a probably two hour topic, but. How does that conversation go when you cut him loose? Is this something where, because he has been so volatile and punching holes in offices and stuff, you got blackjack and Ming on your corners or what's this look like? No, dude, come on. You know, that's not true. I just fired him. So you you call him into the office or you go down the PowerPoint uh, power plant. I think I went to the power plant. And you have a conversation and say, Hey, it's just not working out. You know, you're not, you're not happy. We're not happy. It's just not a good fit. So we're going to part ways today. Is that pretty much it? Probably. I mean, I don't remember the exact verbiage. I really don't. How does he it receive was short, that? It was a very short conversation. Um, I don't think Oli was surprised. Um, but yeah, it would have been, this is it. It's not working out. I mean, I wouldn't have drawn it out. Wouldn't have made too many explanations. It really wasn't necessary. No incident. He's, uh, he takes it on the chin and keeps it moving. No big meltdown or whatever. No, I think, you know, he probably had them. Sharon Sadella was probably cause they were, I think they were living together at the time or whatever they were doing. Right. Um, she probably heard a lot of it, you know, and I'd <laughs> she'd come to work in the morning. She'd look like she'd been up for three days, you know, probably listening to only rant, unfortunately, but, um, no, it was, once it was over, it was over. It was all done. Well, it was time for a change and, uh, you know, he probably viewed it as a, it was probably a a relief to him too. You know, just if he's not happy and you're not happy and everybody knows it's time for a change and 
Hey, speaking of change, lots of adults use nicotine, but there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Now, not everyone chooses to use nicotine, but if you do, you'll want to listen up, get ready. This is an ad for Lucy breakers. If you're one of the millions of adults who do use nicotine, you know that not all products are created the same. And there's one new product that stands above the rest. Lucy breakers are the only pouch that gives you a blast of flavor from the first moment to the last. Now each pouch contains a capsule that you break open to release a rush of flavor and it doesn't fade away like those other pouches, you know, the ones that rhyme with thin and it comes in so many flavors, mint, berry, citrus, mango, even espresso. You don't have to run down to the gas station to get these just order online and they'll be shipped straight to your door. By the way, every order enjoys free shipping. Plus when you subscribe, you'll save 15% off and never run out. This has been a game changer for a person in my life. I saw him braving the weather and it gets pretty cold this time of year down here just to get his nicotine fix, if you will. And I said, Hey man, you don't have to be out there with icicles hanging off your, you know what, why don't you try these buddy? He loves Lucy breakers. You will too. So whether you use nicotine while working, creating, or playing Lucy breakers are the intelligent choice. And boy, we've got a special deal for our listeners. Get $10 off your first order. When you use the promo code 83 weeks at checkout and shipping is always free. That's lucy.co. The promo code is 83 weeks to receive $10 off and free shipping. Visit lucy.co for more details and important safety information. And we thank Lucy for sponsoring the podcast. And here comes the fine print. Lucy products are only for adults of legal age and every order is age verified. This product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical, but if you do use nicotine, visit lucy.co and use that promo code 83 weeks. Jeremy priest from our ad free shows family just, uh, posted. I dip snuff and snuff is, uh, it's like chewing tobacco in a way. And it's getting ridiculous how much it is now. This may be a great way to take that step. Jeremy priest, you are absolutely right. Check it out. Lucy.co. The promo code is 83 weeks. So listen, we know that's the end of, uh, of Ole Anderson here in, uh, in WCW and the power plant, but some other gigantic names, man, came through the PowerPoint at different periods. And sometimes the power plant, I don't think gets enough credit guys like Kevin Nash and DDP got a lot of their training there. DDP would even say most of it. Of course, Goldberg man starts at the power plant and he's off to the races and Nash even had this to say regarding his time there. He described the training facility as, um, (laughs) it's a hut where the other side is just carpet remnants. So listen, it might be down and dirty. It might be primitive. And he would also say that maybe Jody Hamilton's age was limiting the, the different maneuvers that he could teach. And, and obviously Jody was getting up there and wait, and he wasn't quite the performer he used to be, but Kevin's issues with the actual building structure itself, there's gotta be a lot of value in teaching, teaching someone who's new to the business and just sitting under the learning tree of a Jody Hamilton. Okay. Maybe he can't do a bunch of the dives and bumps and maneuvers, but the psychology element that's what's really going to draw money when it comes to the storytelling aspect of wrestling. No, it is. And I disagree with Kevin about that. Look, when you got somebody that's just starting out, 
I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, hats off to, to everybody that's, you know, under developmental at NXT because they, they're training in a state of the art facility. Yes. And I have to believe that there's tremendous value in that in ways that were never even considered when we, when the power plant was initiated, right? It's just, it, it, things have changed, but I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing somebody up from the bottom, including the environment that they're training in. How do you appreciate, you know, where you could possibly go and how you, how you evolve in your career. If you don't start somewhere that gives you a healthy point of reference, Yeah, you know, you bring somebody in off the street and yeah, by today's standards, certainly compared to, to, you know, the performance center, it was a hut. You could, you know, haul out a ring, bring in a truck, change the engine and switch them back again, probably. And everything would have been fine. It was that kind of environment. But there's value in that, too. And I, I don't think you have to be in a state-of-the-art training facility to have state-of-the-art training. Let's put it that way. Well said. I agree with that. I want to uh, give you another quote here. This is uh, William Regal from his book. Uh, when he's talking about Jody and training in WCW quote, me and triple H used to train together at the power plant, WCW's training facility in Atlanta. Triple H hadn't had a great deal of ring experience and he was quite raw, but you could see so much talent in him. He's only worked independent shows in new England. Then the area he's from. And at the time in 1994, WCW weren't running many untelevised or house shows because house shows cost them money as they concentrated on TV. That meant Paul was getting most of his ring time only at the power plant. We'd lock up and I taught him everything I knew. He can do pretty much everything I can. And it didn't take him long to learn either. Um, it's kind of important that quote, because now you see Hunter and Regal effectively, for my understanding, have ran NXT for a long time. Of course, there was a couple of hiccups along the way, but either way, that's kind of their, their lot in life. And to know that, man, they kind of did it together here at the power plant is pretty amazing. Uh, he would continue every, every tiny little bit of body language that was used to tell the audience what he was feeling. So Jody was the best guide we could have. He started teaching us the rules of being a good tag team. They're hardly followed by anyone anymore, but they're very important. Especially if you're a heel team, you cut the ring in half, you throw your opponent into a rope. It must never be the rope where his teammate is. Otherwise his partner would be able to tag him. And when he didn't, it would make no sense to anyone watching. It's little details like all that, which have to make sense. If fans are going to believe in what you're doing in the ring. And Jody spent a lot of time with us showing us all this. And I think it's fascinating because I feel like when people think about William Regal, it's like, okay, so he was born and he was a wrestling savant. He was born and he knew it all. He's like the Benjamin button of wrestling. Almost like he, when he first shows up in WCW on TV, everybody who was used to watching American wrestling was like, whoa, what is this? And we had no frame of reference because much like JJ Dillon or, 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 or Ole or Arn Anderson, they look like they've been the same age forever. So as a 23, 24, 25 year old William Regal, you're like, this dude's got to be in his forties and he's been wrestling forever. But even Regal saw great value in the mind of a Jody Hamilton. I think that's amazing. 
That that is probably one of the best compliments Jody Hamilton has ever received, in my opinion. Yeah. Aside from his, you know, acknowledging all the th- great things he did in the ring, but th- there are very few people I have as much respect for as William Regal, as a human, as a professional, and and just his wealth of knowledge and experience. He's he is in a class by himself. And here's another example. You know, William Regal never he was never main event in anything. He never wrestled in the WrestleMania that I'm aware of. You know, it, he's been he's been that guy, that solid, you know, upper third guy that has so many other skills and abilities. And to get that kind of a compliment from Steven Regal, I'm sure I'm sure Jody Hamilton is smiling somewhere right now because that's a hell of a compliment coming from someone like Steve. That's a hell of a compliment. Well said, no doubt about it. Um, if you haven't read Regal's book, I recommend it by the way. Uh, it's a great place to start. If you're trying to learn about getting into the wrestling business yourself, his podcast was kind of the same thing. I mean, he was just pushing out all these nuggets of wisdom about here's what it takes to be a professional wrestler. DDP, of course, he had a lot to say about the power plan as well. Quote, frustrated by the lack of bookings he was receiving as a manager in WCW, Diamond Dallas Page, who was 35 years old at the time, decided to train to become a wrestler at the power plant. According to Page, both Dusty Rhodes and Eric Bischoff initially advised against it, but power plant manager Jody Hamilton encouraged him to pursue wrestling. And this is all from uh, Wade Keller's report to the torch. Quote, I lived at the power plant. I was constantly practicing my wrestling because they would not put me on the road. If you don't play guitar all the time, you don't get any good. If you don't wrestle all the time, you never get any good. So I love the commitment there of saying I was there all the time. But once again, it comes back to giving Jody his flowers. Maybe you and dusty didn't see it. And, and just based on being 35 thought, yeah, it might not be the best idea. Jody Hamilton, again, whether it's regal, it's DDP, whoever he's there with a word of encouragement. This is a, a great little love letter today to Jody Hamilton in a way, isn't it? And it should be, Yeah, you know, it, it, it should be. Jody was a great guy and probably responsible for a lot more of individual success. And he obviously, as we've just heard, gets credit for on, a, on any kind of a regular basis. So I'm, I'm glad to hear. These, especially coming from guys like Steven Regal and, and DDP. And look, it's true. You know, who, who would recommend to someone that they knew and, and had a relationship with, you know, my case, you know, one of my closest friends, Dusty's case, Dusty was Dallas's mentor in many respects. And when you have somebody that you feel that way for, or is depending on you for guidance as DDP did with Dusty, um, why would you convince somebody who's 35 years old uh, to start a career that t- typically takes 10 to 15 years to get halfway decent at. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think once, uh, you know, I, Dallas heard what he heard from me and Dallas heard from what he word, heard, what he heard from, from dusty decided he was going to do it anyway. Cause that's diamond Dallas page stubborn that way and went down. And I think, you know, I'm guessing once Jody saw, Page's level of commitment. Jody and Page were tight too. Um, Jody said, fuck it, I'll teach you. You want to learn, I'll teach you. And supported him. Thank goodness he did. Now, let's talk about, since we've uh, we've really heaped a lot of praise 
and, and well-deserved. We both agree on Jody Hamilton. We do have to hit a little bit of criticism. Goldberg, no doubt about it. Enjoyed the most success of anyone who really started their wrestling career cold and then became a multimillionaire because of this industry. But our old pal, Bret Hart's been pretty critical of Goldberg's training. Um, Bret Hart was forced to retire. Of course, after a stiff kick from Goldberg, who is basically a power plant graduate. And he would even say, I don't think it was a priority to protect your opponent. That's Brett's criticism. And maybe that's a bit tongue in cheek and maybe it is. I mean, listen, I think and you sort of laid it out when we talked about impact at the top of the show, maybe it was just negativity. He was hanging on to. I don't think for a minute that Bill Goldberg intentionally injured Bret Hart. I just, I can't <laughs> convince myself that that's the case. There, there is not a chance, right? There is, n- it's not remote. It's just not, I get it. I mean, intellectually, I understand anger and frustration, resentment, whatever you want to call it. Unfortunately, it's part of human nature. Yes. But to suggest that that was intentional in any way is just the most absurd thing. It's like everything that comes after that comment loses any credibility because there's just nothing more remote than that possibility. With that said, I do think it's probably, I mean, we can't say that the the power plant system was above criticism. Like clearly there were things that could have been done better. Do you think that in an effort to, cause you said earlier, and again, the, the climate had changed by the time Goldberg popped off Goldberg makes his debut in September of 97, but you sort of laid out, Hey man, we were just looking for any and every revenue we could get. Um, we never knew what Goldberg was going to become, but still, do you think in an effort to we're competing. We're trying to find the next big thing. We're trying to dig out profit, all those things. You think maybe we rushed Goldberg faster than we would no, have in a no, 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 no. Did we rush Goldberg? Yes. But to suggest that we did it because we're trying to create revenue streams, keep in mind when we, you know, thrust Bill Goldberg upon the scene, we were making money hand over fist. It, it wasn't like it was in 93 and 94 and 95 even, right? So it wasn't for the money. And again, I go into this with Chris Van Fleet a lot, but here's, here's what happened with Bill Goldberg. Huge potential. UGA, football player, Atlanta Falcons, amazing athlete, great look. I met Bill Goldberg off-premises and was very impressed with Bill. Just, just his, his size, his look. You know, his personality, his confidence, his charisma. That's what that is. All of those things all kind of add up into that one general term. And it was like, let's get him into the power plant. He wanted to to train. He, you know, he had run into Sting and Lex and probably others who were part of WCW. And Bill made the decision, okay, I want to get into professional wrestling. Right. He ends up in a power plant. And at that point in time, okay, you learn the basics, you know, you get the, the fundamentals down. And then at some point, and it can be relatively early, once someone has been through the basic training, we'll call it, and has some basic fundamentals, typically you would, we would 
put them out in a dark match. Most people know what a dark match is, but for those yes. who may not, um, a dark match is a match that takes place before the television production actually starts. So if we've got a live nitro and the show goes up at eight o'clock, we go live at eight o'clock, for example, we'll have a dark match about seven fifteen. Part of that is twofold. Part of that is to kind of let the audience know the show's getting ready to go and how the action's starting, right? It's kind of like the movie uh, uh, teasers before the actual movie, you know, okay, movie's about to start, but before it does, here's something we want you to see. Same thing with a dark match. So it served that purpose. It also served the purpose of taking someone who had never wrestled in their underwear before mm. and putting them out in front of an audience. Now, it's not television. There's no risk. We're not exposing people to the world. You're exposing them to maybe, you know, 300, 500, 1,500 people who are starting to gather before the show actually starts. But, you know, it's kind of a fail-safe environment. At least it was back then before cell phones. Um, and and you, you're doing that to get that talent used to taking those skills that were learned in a very isolated environment with no people, nobody looking at you, nobody screaming at you, but now transitioning out in front of people. So that was a common you know, process. So in Bill's case, basics, fundamentals, we can get him through a three-minute match. Let's just see how the audience reacts to him and let Bill get comfortable wrestling in his underwear in front of people. And the first time we sent Bill out, it was like, whoa, the crowd is actually reacting to a dark match? Because they typically didn't. They knew what a dark match was. And they, you know, they didn't know anybody. There was no storyline. The people they were watching typically didn't get a lot of TV time, if if any, if they were trainees or in development. So you typically wouldn't get much of a reaction, at least in the beginning. But with Bill, because of his size and his charisma and that just being Bill Goldberg, he did. And we put him out again. Holy crap. Even more reaction this time. Put him out again. Dark match. Holy crap whoa, we've got lightning in the bottle here. Let's fast forward his process. Now, by fast forwarding, I think what, it, in retrospect, what that involved is let's get him really good at doing two, three, four things that we know he can do. We're not going to put him out in a 20-minute match. We're not going to put him out for a 60-minute time limit draw, right? We're going to put him out for two, three minutes, tops, maybe four, give him a chance to beat somebody, get his finish over. God, can you imagine that? Getting a finish over. Holy smokes. And just focusing on that. And that's how Bill Goldberg became Bill Goldberg. The reaction to that character that came stomping through that gate and snorting smoke and spitting fire and then going into the ring that could do two or three or four things that people were really anticipating and wanted to see created Bill Goldberg. But it wasn't created out of a desperation to create revenue. It was created out of a recognition that we had lightning in the bottle. Well, either way, we, uh, we're always going to be talking about the Bret Hart Goldberg and whether or not no, that's because that's because Bret Hart's always going to be talking about it. Someday I'd like to review that someday. I would really like with somebody that's smart, you know what I mean? You know, I I'd like to, uh, Oh gosh, I'm sorry. His name is 
escaping me right now, but the individual who used to work for WWE, who's now very involved in CTE and Chris Nowinski, Chris Nowinski. Yeah. I'd like to sit down and watch videotape with Chris of that match, because there's also a really what, if I remember, and I could be wrong and I'm sure somebody listening is going to make sure I know about it. Well, you and I I watched it and we saw where he hit his head on the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking because I've watched the kick. I've watched that in slow motion and I guess it, I'm no expert. I am not an expert and, but I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, uh, eh, maybe, but I'm looking at Brett bouncing his head off the concrete or the ring post or whatever it was. And if I had to put my money, I, I would put it on that concussion occurring on that bump as much or more so than the kick to the head. I'm not uh, saying that to be controversial. I'm not saying that out of disrespect to Brett. I'm I'm just pointing out what I think is something that is at least worthy of discussion. If we're going to keep blaming Bill Goldberg for that, that concussion, because I'm not sure if this was played in front of a jury, you could convince a jury that that was true. Well, I do blame Bill Goldberg, but I I don't think that he did it intentionally. Again, I I think that's the difference is, is intent. And I don't think for a minute that Bill intentionally hurt anybody. Uh, let's move on. Let's talk about 1995 ABC's good morning. America does a special on the power plant and you got Joan London in your warehouse here. Uh, this is uh, mainstream publicity that wasn't always readily available for WCW. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's funny how success changes things, right? We, we couldn't. We couldn't get mainstream. We couldn't get CNN to cover us. No, <laughs> we were. When I say we were the redheaded stepchildren, I mean we were like the redheaded stepchildren that, that like that would show up at the family picnic over the Fourth of July, that you know had boogers all over their face and were eating dirt. Whoa, you know, that, that's 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 how we were viewed by Turner in general, uh, outside of Ted. And certainly by CNN, so we couldn't get any mainstream exposure. And then all of a sudden, once things started turning around, all kinds of opportunities became available. So that was pretty neat, actually. Bro, you got family members with boogers all over their face who eat dirt? Is that a thing? No, I don't. But I've seen, I, I've seen it. I've, I've showed up at some family reunions at, not my family, but wait, wh- why are you going to other motherfuckers' family reunions? What's going on? So with it's you? it's in the summertime. It's not just a family reunion. It's it's friends and family. Okay, well, you, you got a. I mean, I'm from Alabama. I mean, we don't we don't even have dirt eating family members or you don't. Family. No, no, I, I no, nobody in my family eats dirt or has <laughs> boogers all over their face. Well, none of them have red hair either. Well, that's true. Oh my gosh. Did I just say that they weren't redheaded stepchildren? Maybe that's it. I just offended everybody out there. That's a ginger. And I'm so sorry about that. Shout out to my daughter, Kansas, who does have red hair. I love her. Uh, <laughs> Listen, if you hear it in the, in the distance, you can actually hear Eric backpedaling. Um, oh man, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm doing about 15 miles an hour in reverse. How is Kansas by the way? And she's great. She's uh, got her gig uh, working at the mall and uh, enjoying her first year of school. And Morgan man has somehow a 4.0 at Alabama. Like Megan and I are enjoying a lot of blessings these days. Good for you. That's good to hear. You're, you know, I, I'm, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. 
couple other folks who are going to come through and make a big name for themselves in the power plant. A little fella named Paul white. That's right. The big show gets his start here. Uh, buff Bagwell. He's going to go to uh, finishing school. If you will, I think he did some independent stuff beforehand. Van hammer. Don't worry, boys and girls. He's here to, uh, to save the company. Shane Helms, <laughs> Canyon glacier, renegade, Ron Reese. That's right. The Yeti. Um, do you remember there ever being a, someone that you personally took a look at, thought you would see something, send them on to the power plant and never hear back from them? No, that, I mean, honestly, I think Ernest Miller was the only person I ever personally recruited. Mm. So, and, and that turned out to be pretty good. That was a good call, but I, there was nobody else that I saw when oh, I'm going to get that person to power plant. Let's see how that works and never hear from him again. Nope. That never, never did. I'll tell you what is fun to think about. And I don't even know that this is on your radar, but there was a guy who went on to be a pretty big star in the UFC and mixed martial arts. And is now a content creator. Who's not without controversy himself. He understands that controversy creates cash. And in fact, he straight up dominated Anderson Silva and till Anderson Silva tapped him out, but still up until that point, he never lost a round against the man. I'm talking about the assassin known as Chael Sonnen. He actually came to WCW, I believe in 1998 and tried to go through the power plant and decided, ah, this is too hard. This is not for me. And I I just think that's fascinating to think what a star that guy became, because if you're not an MMA fan or UFC fan, you may not be familiar with this, but Chael Sonnen was known for being the guy who used the most pro wrestling in his promos. And as a result, you know, did quite well for himself selling pay-per-views and selling fights because he understood the storytelling shit, talking pro wrestling aspect. And he too went to the power plant. What could have been, man, I could have been, I did not, I did not know that. And I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that. So thank you for pointing that out. We're going to create a ton of other millionaires though, uh, through here, you know, lots of guys are going to come through and do very, very well. Uh, we first start to see it on TV, I think in like 96 and 97, that we had shotgun Saturday night on the WWF side of things. And then we had WCW Saturday night, the staple, the flagship before there was a nitro and we're pretty consistently promoting the power plant. And as wrestling starts to get hotter and hotter, as you see there, the Harvard of professional wrestling, according to life magazine, if you're watching over on YouTube and then you see the promos reach your potential. Train your body, work on your moves, motivate you to be the best. AKA oh, that's, that's some cornball stuff. Right make here. you do so much cardio. The first day you throw up in a bucket and then make you do more. Uh, and then if you survive that first hell week, well, okay. And then we'll teach you how to fall down. Um, it was a grueling process, but man, when WCW got hot, I'm sure there was just the floodgates were open to folks who thought, man, this is the hot it thing. These guys are making a bunch of money. They're rock stars. I want to do this. When do you remember the, the power plant going from a feeling of, okay, we got to go recruit guys to now WCW so hot. We can kind of screen guys. Oh, I think all of that kind of positive growth, new opportunities, kind of like the media opportunities we just touched on, all of that came about so quickly over the same brief period of time that it's really hard to pick it out, really. But I would say by 96, we realized that the power plant was more than just a way to make a buck. 
right it, it it had much more opportunity and and potential and you know there was a point in time when you know i even considered doing a an unscripted reality show we we talked about jason and i talked about jason herbie and i talked about that a little bit and there were some th- I, I wanted to find ways to integrate, even if it was just interstitially, you know, vignettes or something like that, to keep that power plant in the front of mind for the viewers for whatever opportunities came down the road. Because I, I think the process, right, of learning how to become anything is an interesting process in professional wrestling in particular, because traditionally it's been such a closed off world that, you know, you know how, you know, a great NFL player, you know, somebody makes a Pro Bowl or wins a Super Bowl. Well, you don't even have to know too much about that player to know that he probably started out in, you know, grade school, eight years old, went on standout high school player, maybe got recruited by a college and then drafted into the pros. We have a general understanding of that process. Whereas with professional wrestling, it's kind of like, where do these people come from? What is that process? And I think having the opportunity to kind of see bits and pieces of that process while protecting the business, doing it in an aspirational kind of way, um, we, we knew even back then it was important. It was important to, uh, to get guys reps too, guys like Steve McMichael or Reggie White or Kevin Green or Carl Malone or Dennis Rodman. I mean, without the power plant, that would have been really difficult for those folks, would it? Yeah, because we weren't, you know. I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's just, it's true. Um, you know, whenever those opportunities to work with celebrities came about, I don't think enough time or thought commitment was given to let's get them ready in the ring. Now, eventually we spent more time doing that, but initially it was like, well, we'll just work around whatever they don't know. Yeah. Cause you have them come in one, do one or two things, get a big pop. Don't get too involved in a match, create as much camouflage as possible you know that was the approach and i think had we spent more time as we started to do later on 96 97 98 particularly when it came to celebrities we started to spend more time actually getting them ready but not to the extent that wwe has with the bad bunnies of the world and the logan pauls i mean come on we're seeing now celebrities that are coming through and learning how to wrestle in a relatively short period of time. Granted, they may be kind of freaks of nature in that sense. Yes. But man, you look at the quality of performance that, you know, NXT is now getting, it's evolved a lot from the power plant, but the power plant was for its time in context was pretty progressive. It was a step forward. No doubt about it. Even Bob Sapp went on to, uh, to try out at the power plant. Of course, he's going to become a huge cultural icon and phenomenon in Japan. Uh, he would do some quote unquote MMA. Turns out a lot of that may have not always been on the up and up, but still he became a big television star, a huge draw, uh, did some movies. Do you remember Bob Sapp? touching base in power plant at all is that a guy who would have been on your radar just based on his size no i mean i do i remember him yes did we have a couple conversations yes did i see big upside there i i truly did not why not i just didn't see the charisma okay big guy yes physically impressive yes the MMA background, 
I don't even know how much MMA he had at the time that we came, that no, he came to us. Almost how much? not. Uh, very little. Very little. So MMA came after, right? Physical, you know, performer athlete. Yeah, all he checked many boxes, but when he walked into a room or when I had a conversation with him, I wasn't overly impressed with his natural, authentic charisma. And that's just a subjective thing. Doesn't mean he didn't have it. I just didn't feel it. It is crazy to think, man, if you would have felt it and he would have felt it and you had, you, you built Goldberg up the way you did. And then you built Bob Sapp up like Bob Sapp was in Japan, like a Goldberg Sapp thing on pay-per-view could have been. Yeah. In hindsight. Yeah. That just thinking about that now, right. Knowing what we know now, wouldn't that have been, but then, you know, then you got, let's just take that to the next step. So you, now you got Bill Goldberg who, and I say this with affection and respect. Had limited skill sets. Yes. He he became a, a monster success and has made a fortune over the years with WCW and more so in WWE. But it's not because he had, you know, a cornucopia of technique that he could go in and have all kinds of different matches with all kinds of different talent. Bill never had to. Right. Wasn't, wasn't required of him. But if you would have taken a guy like Sapp who had limited experience and very powerful guy, and you would take a guy like Bill Goldberg, you know, limited repertoire, very powerful guy. You put these two alpha personalities in the ring. Do do you, I mean, I don't know, maybe we would have gotten a great match out of them, but I think we would have gotten a a much better brawl. (laughs) I, I, I don't know. I don't, that one might've been tough to lay out. It's, uh, it's just fun to think about what could have been. And, uh, sometimes you might be looking at your bank account and wonder that. And that's why Eric and I recommend rocket money. I got to admit my wife and I, when the, uh, the whole pandemic thing first started, we subscribed to every streaming service under the sun. I mean, all of them, we felt like we had reached the end of TV, uh, but now the things are more back to normal, man. I couldn't tell you the time we watched most of these. So I heard about rocket money. Now back then it was called true bill, but still rocket money is what it is now. It's the same great service. What it does is it found all the subscriptions that I was paying for and bam, we made some money. We saved some money. I absolutely loved it. I think you will too go out of your way to check it out. If you haven't already, it's, uh, it's a, it's a no brainer. Let me explain how this works. If you're wasting money on subscriptions, or maybe you don't even know you are, you are. It turns out 80% of people have subscriptions. They forgot about maybe for you and your family. It's an, an Amazon prime account that you don't use, or maybe it's a Hulu account that never gets streamed. My wife and I, turns out we were both paying for Peacock. She already had a service when the whole WWE switch happened. I signed up. We didn't need two Peacocks. We needed one, but we just didn't know. We got true bill now rocket money. Bam. We're saving money. We no longer waste money or time or effort on subscriptions. We don't even use. And I got to admit when I first heard about this, I thought, okay, well, how much could that even save me? I thought my total spend on subscriptions was like 80 bucks a month. It was well over $200 a month. You too could be wasting hundreds of dollars a month. And this app that takes care of it all for you is called rocket money. 
the app shows you all of your subscriptions in one place and then cancels for you, whatever you still don't want. Rocket money can even find subscriptions. You didn't know you were paying for. You may even find out you've been double charged for a subscription. Like my wife and I were with Peacock. Well, to cancel a subscription, all you do, bam, press cancel. Rocket money takes care of the rest. Doesn't get any easier than that. Get rid of useless subscriptions with rocket money. Now go to rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks. Seriously. It could save you hundreds of dollars per year. That's rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks. Cancel your unnecessary subscriptions right now at rocketmoney.com slash 83 weeks. And family member, Josh Henny from adfreeshows.com says that my son is getting close to his first match at a state wrestling tournament in Gillette, Wyoming this morning. I'm pumped. So am I good luck to you and your son. And by the way, if you want to pin down your budget, rocket money also can give you a detailed expenditure. You can find out how much money you spent on food and beverage, how much money you spent at the gas station, how much you spent on groceries. So if you want to stay in a budget and I do, I'm learning, I'm learning slowly, but I'm learning to stay in a budget. Rocket money really helps you with that. It will also tell you if there's an unusually large transaction coming out of your checking account. So if you're worried about maybe getting hacked or somebody getting into your checkbook or you see something, you're just not sure what it is. They'll give you a heads up. This thing is way more than just canceling your subscriptions. That's a big part of it. And by the way, Conrad, I did the same thing you did I, when I finally got, and I got True Bill before it became Rocket Money, and they became a sponsor of the show. I had them. And I thought, well, I don't know how many subscriptions I got. I'll take a look. <laughs> it was like six years of doing stupid stuff I forgot about, right? I looked down there, and I canceled like $248 a month. Wow. Worth of subscriptions. That's just the ones that I didn't know I had. That's three grand a year, dude. That, I mean, I was so shocked at when I saw it. I went, what's that? Oh, oh it's $8 a month. What's that? Oh, it's $29 a month. What's that? And you know, you, when you sign up for these things, you think, ah, a couple bucks a month. What the hell? But over the course of time, that shit adds up. Yes, so it does. hats off rocket money. Thank you all. Love it. Check it out. Rocketmoney.com forward slash 83 weeks. Cancel those useless subscriptions today and take some control over your budget. Uh, so listen, there's a, a pretty famous documentary that has gone. Um, I'm not going to say viral, but some wrestling fans have found it since it was a BBC documentary, uh, where they did a whole piece on the power plant. He would volunteer to take part in some of the training in an effort to show respect for the business. And when he asked, uh, questions of Sarge about quote unquote, kayfabe, he's forced to do a strenuous exercise routine. And at one point, Bruce encourages the other trainees to call him a cockroach while he's struggling to regain his breath. And then of course we see it. I think they call it a reversal of fortune during those hot dog eating contests. Uh, and he would say, quote, yes, I vomited while interviewing some wrestlers at the WCW power plant training Academy. They pressured me into a workout that I was patently unequipped to handle. i had had a greasy breakfast and pushed myself to the point of blowing chunks. That's the term they used. And what was funny to Sarge, the head wrestler who was shouting at me and who had been totally unimpressed by my physical efforts was equally disappointed in my puking. He seemed to think it was too watery. He kept saying that ain't nothing blow chunks. I mean, listen, I understand that part of this is we want people to understand you know, that because listen forever and ever, this has been a thing. Oh, you know, that stuff's fake. 
well, we want to prove to these folks when they want to peek behind the curtain. Hey, this isn't what you think it is. We're not out here playing grab ass, but as a guy who's not necessarily quote unquote, old school wrestling, when you see this piece or had you seen this piece, what do you think of that report? I kind of dug it. Yeah. You know, for the reasons that you've already talked about, you know, I mean, because it, 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 there's a, even though, you know, Vince McMahon came out and WWF came out years ago and told everybody it was all scripted entertainment. Kayfabe, kayfabe is, you know, the term doesn't even mean the same thing today as it used to mean uh, in, in many ways. Uh, but I still always liked when people from the outside who had an opinion or a perspective of what wrestling is learn just how difficult it is. And the, yes, was this an extreme kind of example of that? Yes. Was it probably a little less um, authentic than it might otherwise be? Probably. But they wanted to come in and film it. So we turned the volume up. I, I thought it was great. I, 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 thought, it, I thought it served its purpose. Uh, you guys are going to continue to run ads, uh, for the WCW power plant in 1998. And, uh, I think we actually have a copy of that ad that, uh, that we could play here on the program. If Steve's got that ready for us, uh, you guys were running power plant commercials. Even when you're on top in 98, let's take a watch here. Magazine called it the Harvard of professional wrestling. ABC's Good Morning America gave it a rave review. The WCW Power Plant will help you reach your potential. They'll train your body, work on your moves, and motivate you to be your best. The WCW Power Plant, the number one wrestling facility in the world. Call now to set up a trial at 404-351-4959. So Can you imagine some poor person right now has that phone number? Yes. And they're going to just, can you imagine the phone calls they're going to be getting it? No. It's written in the observer here in 99 that you guys are holding once a month open tryouts and you're saying it's open to applicants 18 to 29 years old. And Meltzer would say if the applicants made it through the three day tryout phase, they would earn an invitation to join the school, but it's going to cost them three grand for six months worth of training. You would, uh, designate that the male applicants need to be at least five foot, nine inches tall and weigh at least 175 pounds. And I got to tell you, just looking back now, all these years later, that doesn't seem like that big of an ask here, really in the scheme of things like five, nine, 175, you weren't looking for monsters. If that's the criteria. No, cause I, I, I think the cruiserweights by that point in time have yes. taught us, taught us that you didn't have to be you know, six, six and 300 pounds to, to make a difference. Um, and that was probably that I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. WWE and NXT have gone through some issues with training regiments and hazing and, and there's been controversies in developmental. Do you remember any popping up, uh, in, in the power plant or was this just a different era where some of that stuff was, we sort of turned a blind. Eye. I don't know which I, I, I don't know that I turned a blind eye to it, but I'm sure there was any number of things that happened that never made its way to me. I wasn't down at the power plant, you know, eight hours, 10 hours a day, five days a week. I very rarely went down there. It kind of, it was an autonomous operation in many respects. So I'm no doubt something probably happened down there that would have never happened inside of the CNN center. 
Listen, in the late 90s, more talent is pushed out of the power plant. The wheels are, are falling, though. Obviously, we know that. But Jamie Noble, Chuck Palumbo, Daphne, Stacy Keebler, Tori Wilson. I mean, a lot of, of big legendary names from folks who enjoyed a lot of success in wrestling came through here. And Meltzer would even write it up in May of 99, creating new stars, many of whom have to be totally new faces to come up with a fresh image means setting up real training. The power plant for all of its hype has been a total flop. How many stars have come out of the power plant? The giant who didn't become a star because he was taught to be a skillful performer or good interview and Bill Goldberg. They both had incredible can't miss physical looks and for their respective sizes, exceptional athletic ability, which overcame the fact that neither were anything close to complete packages when they were put out in front of the public. They got over on pure size and because of the pure size were given a strong push on television with the aura of raw power is the answer to find young, tall guys with some good genetics and a little athletic ability, gas them to the gills and push them into the moon. If so, the power plant is filled with guys like that. Almost all of whom were exposed to stiffs in their rare appearances on WCW Saturday night. Real training is something the WWF has set up. Intensive camps run like the Japanese followed with the affiliations with minor league circuits where guys can work a territory and do two to five matches per week in front of crowds and learn psychology before they're put into the big time. So I think you and I both sort of want to poke fun at his they're doing it the right way because they're doing it like Japan. Ugh. but I do think there is something to saying they got to work a circuit. They got to work in front of live crowds. We know the WWE is going to do that with OVW and deep South and, and et cetera, et cetera. Was that ever a consideration starting a little quote unquote developmental territory or partnering with one just to get more reps for the folks on the power plant? And if not, why not? It was, it, it happened. That conversation took place probably half a dozen times a year. Okay. And it, it was always something. And again, it was an extension of something that even though it was, you know, I think Ole Anderson was the loudest voice when it came to this. I mean, like really freaking loud, like yelling at the top of his lungs loud. Um, but his position was, and I agreed with it, so did everybody else, that power plant was one, it was a partial solution. It wasn't the complete solution. That until talent was able to get out in front of a live crowd, whether it was, you know, non-televised events or, or, or televised events, until you were able to replace what was previously the territory opportunity where talent could go out and learn and try new things and experiment and get comfortable with their characters and their, whatever they were doing in the ring until you were able to replace that. You didn't have a complete process. It's not, you know, brain surgery. I mean, like I said, I've listened to guys like Oli and dusty and Jody and, you know, Grizz uh, and, and so many others, you know, Vern, Ganya talked about it all the time. That was the whole, the hole that was created when the territory system went away was how do you get talent with potential to fundamental, basic understanding of how to have a match to experience in front of a crowd. And solving that solution was something we talked about constantly. And different opportunities came up with developmental systems, but they had their challenges too. They had legal issues, you know, lack of control issues. There's a lot you can't just say, okay, we're going to put a talent under contract. And this is, you know, gimmick attorney, Mike Dawkins could probably talk a little bit about this. Although this, this isn't intellectual property. This is more um, 
employment, but you know, we put somebody under contract. Cool. We're paying them. Cool. Now we send them somewhere where we have no operational oversight or control. We're farming them out. We're subcontracting them to somebody, although we're paying them. Mm -hmm. Here you go. What happens if that person gets hurt? Or what happens if that person backs over somebody in the parking lot of a venue? Right. Who's paying that legal bill? Who's getting sued? Who has the deepest pockets? Oh, it's Turner Broadcasting. Bring it on. You know, so it wasn't as easy as saying, let's just go do a deal with a farm and, and farm them out to a developmental territory. Unless we were going to operate that developmental ter territory ourselves and have operational control over it, the legal risk was substantial. And it's, that's one of the challenges. It wasn't the only one or even the biggest one. It's one of them. Well, that answers that. Uh, I certainly understand why you would want to have some sort of a, a distance there. Uh, of course we do know the WWF is going to use developmental territories like Memphis in the nineties. And, uh, there's even an article in, uh, stuff magazine on the power plant where a reporter spent some time in 1999 to quote unquote, learn the ropes. And it includes the itinerary of a typical day, two and a half hours of sit-ups, push-ups, leg lifts, squats, etc. One and a half ropes of running the ropes and taking, uh, bumps. And then the last 30 minutes were spent doing freestyle wrestling. And that's uh, written in the observer here. No wonder these guys look so damn good physically, but can't do a thing. Once the match starts, by the way, and, and, and Dave, and again, Dave's, you know, likes to be very, it always has loved to be very critical of WCW, especially when I was in charge of it. <clears throat> but you just, you know, right before we got into the discussion last, you, you mentioned, you know, Dave Meltzer's comments about how, you know, the power plant never produced any stars. That's not true. We've just spent two hours and 20 minutes talking about all the stars that came out of the power plant. Yes. So fuck you, Dave. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Meltzer would say, Hey man, they got to do some sort of a loss leader program running like your own AAA territory. And we don't mean like Lucha Libre. We mean like minor league baseball and he even suggests maybe they could call it Georgia championship wrestling, but don't put it on TBS. You don't want your exposure to the audience for these guys to be when they're less than. And I do think there's something to say about that. Like, you know, we got to give the talent a chance to evolve and get better, but if it comes out and it's brutal right away, sometimes it's hard to overcome that. Um, and he also lays out that the developmental territory idea has been tried in the past, like when Bill Watts did it and that that is obviously not going to be a financial success. So if you guys were running shows here and spot shows in Georgia in front of, you know, a hundred or 200 fans, you're going to, you're going to lose cash. But Meltzer would say this, and this tickled me, boy, there will be more flops than successes, but you only need two rocks and one Goldberg to come through your system every five years to make it more than worthwhile. These guys could go along with guys who love it and will migrate to wrestling on their own. We've joked many times that if a guy who looked like Juventud Guerrera or Kawada or Mick Foley for that matter, showed up at the doors of the power plant, they'd probably be harassed and vomiting in the parking lot and never be back. Now let's time out right there. I think there's two separate thoughts. Anybody who says, man, I mean, just start this developmental thing and you'll get two rocks and one Goldberg every five years. Well, that was 25 years ago and we ain't seen another rock since. So 
I don't think that's going to be the case. Or another Goldberg. Or another Goldberg. Um, but I do like the point of saying, you know, some of these guys like a Mick Foley, he might not have checked all the boxes. He doesn't look like Palumbo or Jindrak or O'Hare or Van Hammer or any of those guys. So I could see that. Um, but I guess this is worth mentioning when, when, when Meltzer says, well, you got to go out and embrace being a lost leader. I can't imagine that the power plant was ever profitable. It was always a leader, was it not? It was always a lost leader. Yeah. And again, David in his comments is still totally ignoring all of the success stories, including guys like Diamond Ellis Page that came out of the power plant. So first of all, his entire premise, therefore his perspective is it's flawed to say the least. But one of our, our I'm gonna look for it here. Michael Prowlex. Prolo, whatever, however you say your name, Michael, I'm sorry about that, pointed out something that even the indies and training facilities still don't produce the quality of character as the old territory system. And I firmly believe that's true. And it's not like we're going to be able to go back to that. But it's not just exposure. It's not just getting in. Obviously, getting in the reps is part of it because you can't begin to get a feel for what works for your character without the reps repetitions in and of themselves aren't enough. You can do reps in a training facility. You can have matches and matches and matches and matches and wrestle thousands of different people in different styles, all of that in a training facility and still not develop the, the, the level of character that created WWE when it was WWF back in the eighties, right. when you could take Hulk Hogan out of this territory, you could take Tito Santana out of this territory. You take this guy, take this guy, take this guy and basically cherry pick the best of the best from all the different territories to create your roster, because that's what Vince McMahon did when he went national. But in the process of doing that and collapsing the territories, the Hulk Hogan's, the Randy Savage's, the Ric Flair's, the, the, those big names that are still big names today all had years of trial and error in front of that live crowd where there wasn't necessarily a television in your face to expose you to the world. So it's not like Dave was a genius when he pointed that stuff out or he had a unique perspective. I've been hearing that since the day I went to work for Vern Gagne. But how do you replace that? And to suggest that, oh, just go ahead and do it and have a developmental territory and lose hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars a year in the big scheme of things in hopes that you're going to get a Bill Goldberg or a, or, or a rock. It's again, it's a reflection of what Dave doesn't know as opposed to what he does. Well, here's what I know. Jim Cornette wrote a blog on his website several years ago, back in 2015, which read quote, the power plant was another school notorious for their conditioning drills where guys would do calisthenics until they puked and take lots of bumps. And they even had a trainer that had a drill sergeant gimmick an underneath wrestler named Dwayne Bruce. The power plant was also known for turning out very few actual star wrestlers who stood the test of time <laughs> and never worked anywhere, but WCW. I think we've debunked that there was a lot of success. It definitely, yeah, that, that didn't hold up. Well, did it Jim? Well, it did compared to what he's saying about OVW. So as a reminder, he was a, a, a big proponent of running spot shows, the old small territory circuit, and they did crank out Brock Lesnar and, and Batista and Randy Orton and John Cena. 
but that's not to say well, that's, that. Let's hold on. This, okay, I'm gonna, and I'm not challenging. I'm going to challenge it, but not, not because I have a 180 degree opinion. John Cena started in California. Yes. So are we? It, it, who's taking credit for John Cena here? Well, hang on. Diamond Dallas Page started in the AWA. Not as a wrestler, but go ahead. I'm just saying, like a lot of these, a lot of folks who did have some modicum of success, uh, start with some, but. Being discovered by Ron Bassman in UPW, I don't think is nearly the same thing as what he got. No, and, and train, by the way, and training with Ron Bassman. I've seen videos of a friend of mine by the name of Tom Beers, who created Monster Garage and Deadliest Catch, and he's one of the most successful television producers. Yeah, he was out there with Hollywood. Samoa Joe. Yeah, I, I know Cena's beginnings. I'm just saying. Oh, uh, but I saw Cena. I, I saw Cena on tape. You know, Tom Beers had. Tom Beers was actually going to develop a project, and and Cena was part of it. And I went back and watched some of that tape. So for look, my point is, it's really easy for people who have had a contact with someone along their journey to take credit for that. It's I see that a lot, and I'm going to call it out. Brock Lesnar was an NCAA wrestling champion who had been looking for a place to land in professional wrestling. Why do I know that? Because Vern Gagne called me when I think Brock was a senior uh, at the University of Minnesota and said, hey, you got to take a look at this guy. Now, at that point in time, we couldn't take a look at him. We couldn't afford it, but or, or just wasn't ready to take on a project like that. But just for Jim Cornette to take credit for that or OVW to take credit, they were, were they a part of the process? Of course, but let's not start taking credit and throwing around huge brand names and saying, I found that I made it work. You were, you were, well, he didn't, were, he didn't say you were that. a tooth in the gear, brother. You were not the gear. I want to be clear. Jim Cornette didn't say that. I said that those are the guys who came through OVW, but that's not to say that you didn't have your own stable of folks who came through here and li listen, let's be honest. When people think about the performance center and the PC now, don't they always compare it to the power plant? I think that thing pops off in like, I mean, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's like 2014, maybe 2013, uh, maybe it's 2012. I don't know. The point is it was in the last 10 years or so. The power plant existed a long time ago. And once again, was a WCW innovation. You, you have to see the similarities between the power plant and I mean, a guy like triple H and clearly the, the PC was his initiative. I mean, out of Regal's own book, he, he spent a lot of time developing Hunter at the power plant. No. And, and I get that. And what I'm reacting to and why I'm so vociferous, there you go. Word of the day is because a lot of what what Cornette said there was so negative, so so derogative as it relates to Dwayne Bruce and, and everybody else and, and making the, you know, quite obvious statement, obviously wrong statement that, you know, nobody ever came out of the, that mattered. You know, I mean, I'm sorry, what came out of the OVW that you created, dude, just, it's okay to be critical and, and have an opinion, but when you, you know, burying Jody, burying Dwayne Bruce, burying everybody else that actually did turn out huge names that went on to become hugely successful and are still today um, that, that, that had their time in the power plant as well. And in some cases were created, um, I, I think is an example again of, of emotion 
taking the place of any kind of a thoughtful analysis because it's nonsense. Hypothetically, had the sale of a fusion media happened and, and now you're going to get your hands on, on WCW is your baby. Would there have been a version of the power plant that would persist or no? Dude. Yes. Okay. We were, we were actually, Brian Badal and I were actually looking at property within walking distance of the Palms Hotel in Las Vegas. There was an industrial area that was for sale and the idea. Now I never got to, I'm sorry. I'm just listening. Oh, I thought you said something. It never got to the point where um, we hired an architect to come in and start laying out what we were what our vision was for that. But the vision was to really expand on the power plant to have the ability to have a ring set up that would be a makeshift studio audience. Um, yeah, th there was an, ex there were extensive conversations about what the power plant was going to become. And it, you know, I, I, I won't say it would have been on par with the performance center. Cause I don't think the vision was ever quite to make it an NFL like training facility. Right. It wasn't that big, but it was certainly threefold bigger than it was for WCW it was the power plant in Atlanta. And it would have served multiple purposes, including a production facility where we could augment some of our television production with studio production that would have been state of the art and been able to look like we were in a venue or in an arena. So yeah, there was a lot. That was one of the things I was most excited about. You know, we were going to have a lot of the, we were going to change talent contracts where talent had to be based in Las Vegas for that very reason. And also because it was a lot cheaper to fly people in and out of Vegas than it was to have people coming from all points of the country to one location. So yeah, there was a lot of conversation about that. Let's, uh, let's touch on one last thing. And then we're going to wrap this one up. We're going to talk about next week and, uh, and just, you know, get out of here. I have really enjoyed talking about the power plant. I think the power plant was a net positive, but I do think that, well, maybe we could have refined a few parts of it. We've talked about how Chael Sonnen went through and wound up saying, Nope, not for me. And became a mega star basically because of his character work in MMA. Don't get me wrong. Badass mixed martial artist knows his stuff, but he made his money with his mouth. And we talked about Bob Sapp. He was here, slips through the fingers, goes and becomes a huge star in Japan. It's not the only guy who came through. Batista was a huge wrestling fan who wanted to get into wrestling. And he says, quote, I went and had this awful tryout with WCW and they ran me out the door and told me to never come back. I went down to the power plant. They were having open tryouts, you know, just show up and pay $300, which was a lot of money for me. I went down there at 340 pounds and was all jacked up, went down with a buddy of mine and Sarge, he jumped in our faces. He just got on us. He wanted nothing more than to just run us out the door. He was just a bitter troll of a man. <laughs> now, listen, Batista has been critical of even the way he did get to WWE and enjoy financial success and said he didn't learn anything in OVW. And I think Jim Cornette said, yeah, no shit. So, uh, 
<laughs> That's awesome, by the way. That's fucking awesome. <laughs> well, but the point is, do you think that in an effort to, because, man, I get it. I mean, everybody know everybody listening to this knows the story of Hulk Hogan starting his wrestling training and Matsuda broke his leg and it was a matter of, are you going to come back? And even, you know, when we've talked with folks in the Crockett territory about trying to get their, their teeth cut in Charlotte, the number one rule is beat them up, make sure they've got respect for the business. Now we can't do that in the nineties. We can't beat them up. We can't break their legs. We can't stretch them. Well, maybe we can, but we we're going to, we're going to beat them up physically with just calisthenics. We're going to just put them through the ringer, but it does alienate some folks who go on to enjoy success a different way. So I do think that I'm willing to give power plant their flowers, but I do wonder, man, did we accidentally let some opportunity slip through because we were being so hard nosed? Did we lose sight of what we were doing? I mean, having respect for the business is important but not necessarily at the expense of your own business. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree with you. You know, there was a time again, I'm, I'm just going back as a point of reference. I'm not trying to put myself over, but when I got into martial arts in the seventies, I mean, full time, like threw myself into it, literally sold a business, didn't need the income. I spent all day training and half the night, teaching or being an assistant instructor until I made black belt during that period of time, there were a number of martial arts schools that had the same type of philosophy that Sarge did, meaning to protect the reputation of the school and the art and the tradition of martial arts. Um, They didn't want people in there who just wanted to get in shape Mm -hmm. or just wanted to see what martial arts was about. They wanted badasses. They wanted tough people. They wanted, they wanted fighters that would respect the school, respect the art, respect the instructor, blah, 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 blah. And I mean, I remember as an instructor and, and, you know, when somebody was coming up and he got to the level of Brown belt, for example, that was, that was our Sarge time with that student. Because before that student made black belt, you wanted to make sure that that individual was number one, qualified to, to be awarded a black belt and be able to, in a real life situation, actually be able to defend themselves. Um, as opposed to just paying someone, you know, having someone pay and go through the system and getting their belt every three months or every four months. So they felt like they were progressing and you were still able to take their money. That's the way it's done today. That's a more commercially viable and legally safe way to do it. You couldn't do what we used to do commercially in the martial arts, which is when someone gets to a certain level, okay, let's make them pay. Let's make them prove they really want to do this and beat the dog shit out of them. I mean, if I think back to some of the things that I saw and participated in, you know, to, to try to do that today in a commercial environment, you, you wouldn't last six months. Things change. People change. Businesses change. And no doubt about it, the power plant, even though it was back in the 90s, it was run with a 1970s mentality. Mm-hmm. And that was wrong. And I absolutely agree with you that a lot of really good talent perhaps great talent um, got run off like Dave Batista did. There's, there was definitely a better way to do it. And had we all known, had I known 
back in 1996, 97, whatever it was, what I know now, it would be different. It's crazy to think about, you know, what was possible and what you had. I mean, clearly it was successful. I mean, again, I'm, I'm giving the, the props here. Jody Hamilton said something fantastic in motion here. Maybe along the way we could have refined it a little more, but in an alternate universe, a Batista on nitro, a Chael Sonnen on nitro, a Bob Sapp versus Goldberg star. I'm not buying the Bob Sapp one. I'll go with the other ones. I ain't buying Bob Sapp. Well, here's the reality. Everybody's he was a butter being a professional wrestling. I'm not buying it. Will you stop? He made a bunch of money over in Japan. That's just because he made a bunch of money in Japan. Doesn't mean he would have made it here. I went along with you on every one of those, but I'm throwing a flag on Bob Sapp. Well, I'm not throwing a flag on your brand new book. Grateful. Uh, if you haven't already cruise on over and check it out on Amazon, you can get the Kindle immediately You can get the hardcover. You can get the paperback. You can get prime shipping on all these. They will make it in time for Christmas, by the way. So hustle over. It's grateful. Just look for it on Amazon and uh, man, the reviews are in and they are strong. 82% of the folks who've rated it over on Amazon gave it a five-star review. Think about that. 82%. So if, uh, you got a wrestling fan in your life who, uh, is uh, hard to buy for grateful is the way to do it. And if you yourself don't have a copy, I highly recommend it. And a friend of ours, I won't say his name here on the program, but let's just say he lives in Connecticut, but he used to live in Texas. He called me cussing mad about two weeks ago. And he said, when he saw you, he was going to murder you. He's going to kill you and your whole family. Those are his words. And I said, boy, that's aggressive. Where's that coming from? And he says, he wrote another book and he didn't send me a copy. And I, I know said, he called me while I was in Las Vegas. And read me the riot act. <laughs> I was standing out in front of the wind. I'd be, he called me the night before and I was, I was on a plane ride from hell. I don't know if we're in a hurry or not. I'll make this short. I left Cody. I drove two hours to Billings, Montana. The total, I had to fly from Billings to Salt Lake City, Salt Lake City to, to, to Vegas, right? I looked at the total flight time between those two flights. It was like an hour and 52 minutes. It took me 13 freaking hours to get to my hotel. And I missed his call on my way. I just, I was crabby and I didn't want to talk to him because I was just beat from flying getting stuck at airports so the following day I'm walking over to to for my meeting and I'm standing in front of the Wynn Hotel and I see it's him so I I, I go, oh, I'm not gonna you know stiff him I'm gonna take this call take the call and he read me the riot act mm-hmm. he said things to me that I was I, I, I just I was taken aback <laughs> grateful everybody wants it you can get it with prime shipping uh, even assholes in Connecticut can get it. It's, uh, over on Amazon, check it out right now. And by the way, next week, we're going to be back talking about something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. The rise of Eric Bischoff. Well, what does that mean? We're going to talk about the process of how Eric went from being what he described as a C-level announcer to running the whole damn company to kicking Vince McMahon's ass. A rise to prominence no one has seen in wrestling before or after. We're going to break it down and talk about what that process was like of how he worked his way up the totem pole, so to speak, next week here on the program. And maybe you're trying to work your way through some bills. Man, I can help you over at SaveWithConrad.com. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners change their life. Yes, we can save you a whole bunch of cash if you already have a house. 
We can help you consolidate all of your credit card debt. We can help you knock out your second mortgage. Maybe you've got a home equity line of credit and you've seen that interest rate creeping up. Well, let's get it in a low fixed rate right now and put our hands on the wheel. Now, I also want to mention if you're still in an apartment, we are your first step to home ownership. It's savewithconrad.com. Here's a great review left to us by Kale out in uh, North Dakota. He says, I was buying my first home. Clint made things very easy for me. He was very easy to work with. Same with Jennifer. I didn't have as much contact with her, but she was willing to help me in every way she could. The whole process was made very easy to me. Thanks for all of your help. These are real podcast listeners who just have an interest in old school wrestling nostalgia talk and now fumbled their way into becoming a first time home buyer all because they let me help. And I love what we do. Eric, you have seen some of the folks that we've been able to help. We're routinely helping our podcast listeners reorganize that debt, restructure that debt. And in the process, they're saving five, six, seven, even 800 bucks a month. And at the same time, get out of that apartment and start building wealth for themselves. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, what's going to happen to home values? Nothing. Take a look at it. I mean, in the history of home values here in America, they've dipped one time and that was 2008, never before, never since. Now let's not be crazy. Don't go out and overpay for a house. You don't want to, well, let's bid a hundred grand over. That was foolish. Then it's foolish now. And in fact, now you can get a better deal. Homes are staying on, on, on market a little longer. That's not something to be alarmed about. It means we're getting back to the right, accurate way things are supposed to be. And by the way, you can always refinance and get a better rate later. So if for some reason in the future rates take a big dip, you can, you can jump on that. You can't do that with your rent though. Have you ever heard of a landlord coming over and say, man, you've been paying me too much money. I think I'm going to lower your rent. No rent always goes up and it's because home values always go up and you got to decide, do I want my rent to go up or my equity to go up? That's the difference between renting and owning. We'll walk you through it. We'll make it easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much find out right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Don't just wait and make it a new year's resolution to save money. Take action. Get the process started right now. I'll show you how to skip your next two house payments. And you're going to be saving every single month at SaveWithConrad.com. man. I don't know what I expected today, Eric, but this was fun. I had a blast and I want to thank again. There's so many people I want to shout out to Eric Jones. Thanks for joining us. I won't turn this into a whole big deal. Bobby kilo five golf tango x-ray. Thank you for joining us. That's some ham talk there. If you're a ham radio operator, look up Bobby, but just want to say thank you all for being here. It's fun to see some of the comments live. We didn't get to, you know, a lot of them and some of us just, you know, everybody's chatting amongst themselves and having a blast here this morning. So thank you for joining Conrad. Thank you. This has been a fun topic. I had a lot more fun with it than I thought we would. I hope everybody has a great Christmas. This is our last episode before Christmas. We'll be back the day after Christmas next week, talking about the rise of Eric Bischoff and next Wednesday, put it on your calendars. Now circle it. You get to see a live execution of Eric Bischoff. Nick Patrick is going to join us. We're calling it the fast count. It's right after AEW next Wednesday, the 28th. It's exclusively at adfreeshows.com. We're going to watch the match. We're going to break it down. We're going to talk about, he said, she said what happened before, during, and after the match. There's only one place to get it and it's adfreeshows.com. Merry Christmas, everybody. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. 
John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.